What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back for another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. Today, we are joined by chess streamer, Team Envy member, and potentially upcoming pro poker player, Alexandra Botes. Okay, might be joking a little bit on the end there, but she'll be joining us in just a minute. Before she hops in, I want to let you guys know, last week, Norman Chad joined the podcast, talked about the World Series of Poker. I think it was a fun one. So if you want to hear from one of the members of the iconic World Series of Poker main event casting duo, you can head over and check that out. And coming up next week, Garrett Adelstein will be joining the podcast. I'm sure we have a lot of topics to talk about as well, including poker in LA, kind of what's been going on with that lately. It's been growing. Uh, his thoughts on the World Series of Poker, although some people might think we've beaten that to death already. Live poker in general and lots more. So if you want to hear from Garrett, you can tune in next week. Okay, with that out of the way, I bring in now Alexandra Botez. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Doug. I was just trying to look and, and find your channel. I'm so used to seeing comments on the side while I'm making any kind of content. Yeah, actually, so we have um, we use StreamYard here on the podcast, and it has a feature where it only shows up for the host because I don't want to I don't want to fluster our our guests. But now that I right. think about it, as a professional streamer, you probably wouldn't be flustered. You would actually be in your element. So maybe we should have changed that for the stream. Yeah, I mean, it's almost weird to not be getting constant feedback every time you do something, but also healthier, also healthier. It's definitely a lot healthier. And when I look back on my past podcast, I can see my eyes flickering. You know. Guest mm -hmm. chat me, guest chat me, and my eyes are going back and forth. And so I, I try to not look at the chat too much, although it's always fun to see what they what they have to say from time to time. Anyway, th thank you for, for joining us today. And I just have to say, I recently moved to Austin. I know that's where you're based out of. Yes. Um, I love it. I love Austin. It's good living here. You like Austin. What do you like about Austin? I like the no taxes. That's nice. Yep. I like the warm weather. Mm -hmm. I love the barbecue. Okay. In fact, barbecue... So coming from the West Coast, you think you know barbecue or, you know, you've had barbecue. It's not that good. You haven't had Texas barbecue. And when you go to some of the places like Terry Black's, it's so unbelievably delicious. I'm not sure if you're a barbecue fan or not, but I've been converted for life. I am now a, a Texas barbecue for life man. And I'm proud of it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Yeah. Those are the top three reasons people love Texas. I feel like you read the brochure. You have the talking points. Exactly. I'm, I'm glad you like Austin. Exactly. I mean, I ha I have been here for five months now, so that makes me an official uh, local, I believe. Um, that born is and true. raised. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, close enough. And and you think you're going to be staying here long term? Yeah, I think so. I think this is a, a good spot to settle down. Um, it's a lot more green than the rest the rest of Texas. It's very, it's got. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of California in, in some ways. Um, maybe mm -hmm. that's just the people. A but, California uh, within Texas, uh, a, a blueberry in a red state. Absolutely. I think that's what people tend to see it as. And there's a lot more outdoorsy stuff to do. The lakes are nice. It's a very young, vibrant city. That being said, true. I don't know if I'm going to stay. <laughs> oh, where, where are you thinking about headed to? New York or L.A. All right, I just I, I miss the excitement of big cities. Austin is nice. It's quieter. It's a good place to settle down if that's the stage you're at in your life. But it's not a global city. And there. there's just not as much diversity as you have in other places in terms of just the amount of people coming through events to do different um, niches and hobbies that you find in those cities. You know, that sounds nice, but we I think we all know the real reason is because the chess hustling is just much better in New York and L.A., right? <laughs> I haven't done any chess hustling in L.A., um, and there's only so many chess hustler videos you can do before it gets stale, but I'm going to make sure to run that dry. So for those of you guys that don't know, uh, Alexandra has a series of videos on her YouTube channel where she basically plays people uh, chess in the park, 
chess hustlers that try and I guess win money off of people that are playing chess or whatever. And sometimes it's just you in a dress. Sometimes you dress up in different characters and stuff and you go and you beat these people playing chess in the park. Uh, I think these are probably some of your most popular videos. What, what kind of prompted that, that idea? So I was uh, in New York taking the weekend off, visiting some friends. We were going to dinner and I was like, oh, I bet a YouTube video playing the chess hustlers would do really well. You know, the pandemic's been there. I figured the video would do well, not as well as it would. So I actually just had one of my friends film it off of my iPhone before we went to dinner because I was like, oh, great YouTube content. Posted it. One of the videos gets 16 million views and then the others get three to four. I was like, okay. I mean, you know, as a content creator, you have an idea of what things will do well, but I did not expect the scale at which those blew up. That's incredible to do that kind of numbers out of the gate on, I I assume when you started your channel, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't huge when you start. I mean, it had to be shocking. And and as someone that's done a lot of YouTube content, it's just such a great feeling when you just see the metrics just keep going everything. Oh my God, this one's going to be a big one. And it just keeps getting bigger. And it's it's so exciting to, to have that happen to you. It is super exciting. But the thing is when it happens randomly without you having planned it, you don't really know how to replicate it. Um, it reminds me of people who go viral on TikTok, then they keep doing the same shtick they did the first time, adding a little bit of twists. Um, and at some point, those are going to get old. So how do you go from after you have the first viral video without letting it be a one-off? Um, and I, I think I made a lot of mistakes after and just got a lot of advice and became maybe too perfectionist and didn't post as much as I should because we were trying to work on um, a lot of different video ideas, some of which are still being edited because they just didn't turn out as well as planned. Yeah, I think on YouTube specifically, uh, obviously at the point of the algorithm. And mm-hmm. uh, the idea, I think, with some of those videos is people love comeuppance. So mm-hmm. someone trying to sort of hustle and they get theirs because they get tricked by a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that kind of video does really, really well on YouTube. And you're definitely tapping into that with, um, you know, with those kinds of videos. Some of the most popular work I've done is on this guy named Mike Postle. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he basically che- cheated in a live stream where he played a live stream game and someone in the back was feeding him the cards of the other players uh, for two years. Ooh, for two years? For two years, yeah. Wow. The thing was, it was happening at very low stakes. So people weren't really incentivized to, people weren't checking out. It was a 2 5 five, ten kind of game. It wasn't a huge mm. stakes game. So um, over the course of a couple of years, uh, he cheated a quarter million off all these people in California. But um, some of my most popular content was, was on stuff pertaining to him. And I think a lot of people like to see that he got caught and they like to see right. that sort of justice was served. And I, and I feel like maybe you're tapping into that with some of those videos. Yeah, but it, it reminds me a little bit. I, I watched your video where you stopped making it was like, this is my last poker video or something like that. Um, and you were talking about how you know that you should be doing this, but you don't really like making that kind of content and you wanted to kind of expand your platform, which is really cool. It seems like you're doing that with your podcast. But that's what these kinds of videos sometimes feel like. I could keep doing the same thing over and over, but it doesn't really feel like pushing the envelope. That being said, whenever you get lucky like this and you catch cash lightning in a bottle, you absolutely have to take it, build the platform, and then you can go into whatever else works. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Obviously, and I, I did say that in my last poker video that was 10 poker videos ago. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, guys. This is the last one now. No, just, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. You you don't want to feel that you squander an opportunity. And I think when you do content online, that's the the eternal struggle is you don't want to squander your opportunity mm-hmm. that you've been given. But then you also reach a point where it's just not as satisfying to do the same thing over and over again. And I think for me, that was talking about 
hands, the strategy in hands. So mm -hmm. my, I would do videos where I would break down a hand. Okay. This guy is supposed to bet here or raise here, whatever. And that was at the time it, it was, it was fun and exciting and new. And then you reach this point where I don't want to do this anymore. I've, I've kind of had enough. And sometimes you get pigeonholed into certain things, certain sticks, and you don't want to get pigeonholed like that. And so that really yeah. is the, the, the spinoff. The, the, the question is how do you sort of do different things based around that. So, so when you said you, you're, you're too much of a perfectionist, what exactly did you mean by that? Well, after the first couple of videos went viral, I started getting a lot of advice from people who do YouTube and a big difference between Twitch and YouTube is on Twitch, you're trying to get out as many streaming hours as you can. Having a high quantity of streaming hours is a really important KPI to keeping people. And then on YouTube, the top YouTubers are much more about quality. They post less frequently, but they do much higher production videos. And what our YouTube channel mostly was, was just taking our Twitch VODs and repackaging them up for YouTube. But the YouTube audience is, is pretty savvy. And I, I started talking to people who work on YouTube or our YouTube and how the algorithm works, how when a video comes out, it's first shown to your subscribers. If the subscribers really like it, then it could get pushed to another audience. Um, and all of the advice I got is do make less videos, just do better videos. So we had, you know, like 10 videos on cues playing hustlers, which maybe we could have posted and they could have gotten like 300 to 400 K views per video. And we could have gotten another batch of, let's say five hustler videos, but we, we held off of those and we tried to produce some higher quality videos. But the thing is we had never focused on YouTube videos. So that was our first time doing it. Even the ones that went viral, went viral out of chance. So it's a completely new skill. And I just made so many mistakes along the way. Um, you know, some of them were higher production budget too. I had to refilm them. They're still being edited. There's like three videos I never posted because they're just not that good. Um, and now we're going more to just posting more videos that are, I know are going to get less views than the other ones. But it, it was a learning process. I didn't know a lot about how we filmed certain things. I missed um, some of the storylines that I think are important. And it's a huge learning curve. And I think I got really discouraged after that happened. And I spent so much time recording videos that I never even uploaded because it's just a new skill that I'm not as familiar with as just making live content where you're mostly just being yourself. It's easy to get in your head there too because yeah. you have maybe a couple of videos go badly and you think, oh, maybe I'm not as good at this or I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I think there's a bunch of stuff that, that goes into the algorithm. The first is sort of the first and most important thing I think on YouTube is is the retention, how, mm -hmm. how well you keep people. Let me give you a good example from my channel. So when I started doing the videos, I'd break down poker hands. I would start off full screen me and I'd say, okay, guys, today we're going to do this hand and this is what's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to talk about this thing. And what I noticed was when people would just see my face, they would leave because, you know, I, I get it. Um, and then okay. <laughs> I'm going to put me in the, I'm going to put me in the corner and then the table's going and immediately I got a 10, 15% boost in retention because people open a poker video and there's a poker table. That's what they're expecting. They open a poker video and there's me full screen. That's not what they're expecting. Um, and maybe it's a little different now because I've built up an audience, but there are so many things like that where you can make small changes that increase your retention and then you end up performing a lot better and then the platform will continue to show it to more people. And then the other thing I was going to say too is obviously so Twitch is a, is a super huge volume game because it's all about being the top of the directory. And if you're not at the top of the directory, you get such smaller gains than you get by being at the top of the directory. So you have to put in the hours to kind of build that up to have a chance at being able to do that. And in YouTube, YouTube isn't quite the same. But they still do prefer volume and they do help out channels that 
put videos up daily or very close to daily or at high volume. And so you're caught in this trap of, yeah, how much, how do I put out lots of videos that are also high quality? That's a really tough combo to try and go for. But the thing about YouTube is that you get different advice from everyone. Um, I actually, maybe retention is something that works on your channel, but for the videos that went viral, the retention was nothing different than our other videos. And you could compare, and I've looked at metrics between different videos, and it's not really obvious what is making certain videos click and what isn't, at least in our channel. Was that bef- So what, what YouTube will do, though, is they'll keep showing it to new videos until your mm-hmm. retention gets to your other videos. So yeah. they'll, they'll, just, they'll just, so for example, let's say that you have just your audience. Let's say that mm-hmm. 100,000 people or 200,000 people, whatever, watch a video, and it averages seven minutes of retention, okay? Mm-hmm. And then a new video comes out and it gets 10. Well, YouTube goes, oh, the, people really like this. I'm going to show this to people that, that don't know you. Mm-hmm. When they show your video to someone that doesn't know you, it's going to get way lower retention. And then they keep essentially pushing that until it gets down to seven minutes. So they'll all look the same eventually. But it's because if a random person watches for seven minutes, that's way, way harder. Of course, to do way better. Likes you. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, that, that's 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 fair. Um, and I. I guess the other point is even when you know these metrics are the case, like, oh, retention. Oh, you want people to watch your video for a long time? Yeah, that's obvious. But how do you do it? I mean, how do you get people? What is the right way to first get them into the video and then keep them? Um, just I, I know you've made a lot of different YouTube channels and you've probably <laughs> seen the metrics um, across them, but I, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still figuring it out. Cool. And on, on Twitch, it's cool because now we have this audience base and we're usually closer to the top of the directory and we work with twitch directly um but for people who are starting on twitch yeah discoverability is is really shitty but i think we are doing well on twitch i just don't know how to bring it on other platforms that are more sustainable in terms of the lifestyle you have to have as a content creator very fair yeah so uh my next question for you here was how good are the hustlers at the park really are they Mm -hmm. are they can you just how good are they um so russian paul is is like between 2000 and 2200 he has beaten grandmasters when they don't take him seriously um so they they have the capability to play pretty well but the other hustlers there's a lot of them so the top hustler let's say is master level and it depends which parts of new york you play in but other ones could be even like you know 1500 1700 so not that good pretty soft games not much of a hustler yeah, exactly. Um, but they're, they're not even hustling anymore. Right? Nowadays, you usually have to uh, pay just to get a game in. What do you mean you have to, what do you mean you have to pay to get a game in? I don't understand. So, so before, they, you used to pay if you lost. And I think that was a little bit more competitive. But now most of the hustlers just charge per game regardless if you win or lose. Just because if you want to play, they have the board and they're there, basically? Yeah, they have the board. They're there. They're waiting. They just sit around waiting for people to play. Interesting. I guess without yeah. them, there'd be no games. Yeah, exactly. They're the ones who are are, are staying there. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of fine with that. I like that they're keeping the culture alive. It's really fun and it's unique. And there's no other places in the U.S. quite like, you know, Union Square Park where you can always walk by and there's always people playing chess. And they're just also the most entertaining in Union Square Park. That's the only place where they really do a lot of talking. Some shit talking. Yeah, I noticed exactly. that. So we recently met in uh, Cabo for an event that was going on down there. And when I saw you playing chess, I, I didn't realize how much shit talking there was in in chess I- IRL. I thought I thought it was probably a, I thought it was a sport for 
you know, cultured people that like the finer things in life, but mm-hmm. instead it was uh, a lot like, oh, you think that's a move? Just shit talking. Oh, what the fuck was that? Just just berating Dan Smith as you go along. Uh, what's up with the shit talking in chess? It's way more fun to shit talk. I mean, obviously you don't do it in classical chess and that's where people grow up. Um, but my favorite part of chess is when it's an actual social game and not everybody shit talks, but you know, my family does, my friends do. So I just grew up in a culture where you're really just trying to piss off your opponent as you play. And it makes it way more entertaining. You put things on the line, you make fun of them. It's sometimes their mother, if you're really losing and you need them to get Ooh. tilted, whatever it takes to get the win. Wow. What's the meanest thing you've ever said? What's your What's been your worst shit talk ever? Oh, I would not not feel good saying those okay. online <laughs> all right okay we won't we won't say but, that but it, it was in a situation where i was really down and we were playing for shots and i knew if i had to take one i would lose and it's the points of desperation where you start saying any kind of trash talk just to get back in the game nice and uh yeah that that person ended up missing two days of work after that he needed to recover from the match. Good. that means you booked a win <laughs> yeah exactly exactly as a kid, I actually grew up playing a lot of chess. I had a, uh, actually, so when I was really young, four or five mm-hmm. years old, my dad, he taught me that how chess works. And then we did this thing where every time we'd play, he would have less pieces. And then he'd slowly add his pieces in. And then by the time I was, I don't know, six, seven, eight, something like that, we were playing full on games. Yeah. And then I got in the chess club and then I had, um, I got lessons from a, from a master whose name escapes me off the top of my head. I think it's, um. Larry Edmonds, I think, I think was his name. For, okay. Anyway, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, but he, I, w- I got chess lessons after school, and then I went to play in chess uh, chess competition in Math Olympiad, and I got really into chess. And by age 10 or 11, I was pretty good. And then I moved to Las Vegas, and I remember <laughs> showing up at my middle school and saying, hey, guys, where's the chess club? What the fuck? Chess club? Where do you think you are? We, we weren't in California anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, from then on, I've really not played much chess at all. But I've always had a special place in my heart for chess, and it, it is a really, it is a really beautiful game. What What are your thoughts on the way that AI has impacted it, and sort of the the study that you need to do nowadays versus obviously you weren't playing twenty years ago? But mm-hmm. what have you seen change as far as the AI concerns with chess study? Yeah, I mean, a lot of top players have complained about how you know AI has really changed how much they enjoy the game or home preparation. And I think you see a lot of this with poker as well. And I, I know it's something that you mentioned when you started to stop, started losing some of your interest in poker, but it changes a lot of the dynamics at the start of the game where you can, I mean, you're 1800 and I'm sure you know this as well, but for the audience, you can basically prepare specifically for whoever you're playing. You can look at a database of their games and you could pick the variations um, that, are the ones they're going to play against your specific opening lines. And then you could prepare at home with a computer, look into very, you know, tricky things. And you go into the game sometimes feeling like the person who gets the edge out of the opening is the one who came more prepared for that specific game or did more training rather than who's the better chess player over the board. So you have certain players who are just extremely good at preparation. Um, and you have players changing their strategy to try to avoid getting into specific opening traps. So it mostly changes the opening and it changes the playing style. I know that a lot of top grandmasters, you know, they're training with supercomputers now or they look at Alpha Zero games. Um, and you have to be way more prepared at the start. A lot of openings have lost their charm. Um, you know, you're not looking at them with your 
coach or your second and trying to figure out things by yourself. You're just doing whatever the computer is telling you to do, which is why some people like chess 960 since it randomizes the opening position. Bobby Fischer, Susan Polgar, they are both really supporting that variant for that reason. That variant's cool. It's where all of the pieces in the back row can randomly be in different spots, right? There's yeah. and it's called 960 because there's 960 yeah. different openings, different potential openings, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. the case. But yeah, I will I, say for the average player, and this is probably similar to poker, it doesn't really impact you because most people don't know that much opening theory anyway. And it does make it a lot more accessible for people to be able to study and learn by themselves, to have an opening table and just check with the computer and see what kind of mistakes you do. But it also makes chess players lazier. Instead of trying to figure it out and really understand why something made sense or it didn't, you just look at the computer, it gives you an easy answer. You feel like, oh, okay, I get it now, but you you probably are not going to retain that as much. I could, I, I could see openings really having changed because of computers and how deep you can solve things. And you don't want to get caught and, and trapped into a line that your mm-hmm. opponent has play, studied for that you have not. Right. Um, I remember when I was young and I was playing, I had this huge book of openings. I'd have to read up on all of them and I would try and remember as many as I possibly could. And I had ones that I liked or didn't like or whatever. Um, but now, yeah, you can just pull up a program. It'll tell you sort of exactly what the best move is here. Or mm-hmm. um, I'm sure there's a ton of different resources that that people can use. What are some of the best resources for people that, that let's just say that they're a casual chess player, they wanted to improve at chess? What, what, what's, what are some of the best places they can go to try and improve their game? I think when you're starting off chess, there's so much you could do that is going to help you improve. Um, but I think it's just really important to actually be in a place where you are playing relatively slow games and analyzing them after. And the cool thing is on any chess platform, you can analyze your games after with a computer. But what I would do is work on tactics. That's going to help you a lot. There's so many free tactics out there. You can do them on chess.com. You can do them on Lee Chess, wherever. Then you can play something like 15-minute or 10-minute games. Um, If you can play them with a friend and analyze them after, that's better. Or if you play it by yourself, look over it and then check with the computer. So try to figure out where you think you made your mistakes so that you could try to fix it and then use the computer to check if you are correct or not. I like that. And there is definitely a crossover to poker with that because I this is the classic thing I hear at a poker table. There's an older player and then the kid makes a move that they don't like and they say, I've been playing poker since before you were born. Doesn't mean you're better. You know, just because right. you played thousands of hours of poker doesn't actually give you the ability to be good. It just means that you have experience, which can be worth something for sure. But it doesn't mean that you make the right moves or, or, or know the right moves. Right. And for, for new players who are getting into poker, what would you recommend? Is there do you think it's easier to get better at poker because of computers now? Well, so nowadays it gets it gets kind of weird with poker because the, the single best thing that you can do to play poker, uh, besides, of course, purchase membership at upswingpoker.com. Thank you for the layup. Uh, besides that is to use solvers to actually see the outputs. The problem with solvers is that they're not as, nearly as intuitive. So, for example, let's say that I wanted to play versus a computer program with chess. Mm-hmm. And I always liked Shredder when I was growing up. I don't know what's bigger now, but I would use Shredder and it'll you put in your move and then it, it shows you the best move and it shows you the line and it and if you move your the piece it'll show you the value of that line so that's really intuitive to use you don't have mm-hmm. to be a computer expert to know what you're doing but with solvers you have to know what the preflop ranges are input them correctly input all the parameters and then you get an output the output's complicated there are multiple sizes you have to know how to create subtrees so so for me as someone that has used that a bunch when i was studying for my recent challenge with negranu i i'm i'm i can do that quite well but if you're mm-hmm. just a casual player 
you're not going to buy a thousand dollar solver and then right. learn how to do all these things. So I think for casual players, you're much better off purchasing something like Upswing, where it teaches you the the <laughs> or run it once. I can throw my my competitors in here. Let's do run it once. Um, no, no, no. This is your platform, Upswing Poker. Keep going, Doug. You're, you basically made me have to plug my own site and then <laughs> laugh when I did. It just, you know, it's, it's, I was smiling because I agreed. It's a great educational yeah. platform. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, like I was saying, I think if you're, an, if you're a casual player that doesn't want to get deep in the weeds, I think you're better off having good players explain sweeping con- overarching themes and concepts that you can then take and apply in your game. Um, but if you want to get really good, you're going to have to just put in a lot of hours working with the solver and understanding all the ranges and stuff, because there can be big differences between spots where you should never raise spots where you raise 8% spots where you raise 30%. Mm -hmm. And I think that newer players might not realize how important those differences are because, you know, zero, eight and 30, you have to have such a different mindset going into that when something is an 8% raise and you're, let's say you do it a fourth of the time or half the time, you're way overdoing it. Let's say you're doing it zero percent. You're you're not way underdoing it, but you're you're missing out on a line that creates a lot of value for you. So I don't know. I think that the study process is a lot more grueling in poker than it is in chess. Um, although maybe the difficulty of being better than your opponents is. I, I'm actually let me let's lead into this because who do you think are smarter? Who do you think smarter? Who do you think are smarter? Great English. Who do you think smarter? Chess players, top chess players, or top poker players? Who do I think is smarter? Um, well, I mean, that's that's a trick question. I think, obviously, if you're a top player in anything, you have to be extremely intelligent. If you're the best poker player in the world or if you're the best chess player in the world. Um, and also, it takes a lot of time and something that you've dedicated your entire life to. So how much of it is training versus, you know, raw IQ or EQ? Um, but there's definitely a lot of overlap between chess and poker. Um, I think I will say this. I always get confused at people who are smart enough to be a grandmaster, but then spend their entire life being an average grandmaster. If you put that brain power and talent into use, you don't have to be broke. You don't have to be starving. You know, like look at if you would have done that in poker, you would have done much better, which is why I always like seeing people who are like a master go into poker and then just do so much better than they would have if they were just doing chess. Um, So there we go. I'll I'll give poker players a a bone there. Thank you. We, We do appreciate that. But actually, I do have a question. I, I, so I, I, was, I was in Vegas because I was playing in um, the WPT cash game. And then I was on Poker After Dark, which was really fun. And I was talking to, to Landon Tice. And I was asking him how much of poker does he think is EQ versus IQ. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Can you explain what you mean by EQ in this context? EQ, EQ being able to read your opponent and figuring out specific plays and adapting them to the actual person versus, you know, just trying to do GTO or playing with pot odds and equity and having tried everything before. Well, as an online player with an online player background, it's definitely more IQ than EQ. Mm-hmm. Um, as you start to play live poker, though, now you add this element in, which is you can see your opponent, you can see how they hold chips, you can see what they're doing. And I think at low levels, it, it can play a really it can be very important because people can give away things that are are quite simple. And one of the most classical examples of this is as humans, we have this, this innate 
um, characteristic, which is when we're strong, we like to act weak. And when we're weak, we're weak we like to act strong. Is we just it's just who, it's just how we do things. It, it's mm-hmm. how to fool people. And I think especially in lower tier games, when people do stuff that seems strong, they're oftentimes weak. And people do things that look weak, they're oftentimes strong. Um, so I think that that's a, a, a pretty consistent tell. And then I also think that there are certain things that are just too risky to do that players won't do if they're bluffing. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. If I go on on the river, and let's say I'm a recreational player, yeah. I'm not going to strike up a conversation with you about some stuff that's going on in some other game if I'm bluffing because it's just too nerve wracking. And if I just say the wrong thing, maybe I give it all away. Right. 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 So th- things like that you can you can pick up on, on tells that are simple, but at higher levels, there's just not a lot of tells going around because people are so trained to mm-hmm. throw false tells or fake tells or they're just balanced or whatever it is that you can try and play that game. And some people are good at it. Guys like Phil Hellmuth, guys like Phil mm-hmm. Ivey, the old school guys, they're good at yeah. that stuff. But I, I just don't think you're going to – I don't think unless unless you have a real knack for that, I just don't think that's going to be the road that you probably want to go down as a newer player. I think mm-hmm. you're going to get beaten by experience there. Got it. So you so you think that it's mostly just how good you are at poker and then at the higher levels, everybody is so good at not giving tells that it doesn't matter as much. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I know Landon. I talked to Landon. Landon's got a long way to go in his poker career. He couldn't he didn't even beat Bill Perkins in that recent challenge. Oh, no, no. I I, I mean, he's a nice kid. He's coming up in the game. He's had some okay results, but he's he's got a ways to go before he's. He knows what it takes to get to the top in poker. He's got to get. He's got to climb the mountain first, you know. This is you encouraging him, right? Totally. I've said that. I mean, he'll hear this. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> also, um, I recently started watching classic uh, poker videos, and I think my favorite is Tom Dwan's old faces, where he just freezes. Is that him trying to not give any tells? And does he? Did he actually practice not blinking? I assume. Well, it's definitely not give tells. And then yeah. I assume that he's, he, maybe he didn't practice it at home in front of a mirror, just doing that. <laughs> but eventually you just get used to doing it. So when I'm, when I go all in in a spot, there's a video yeah. of me, I just pick a card and I just focus on that card. And then I just try and forget anything else in the world. And I do that, whether I'm bluffing or, or I'm value betting, because mm-hmm. sometimes you have to run a big bluff and you know, you're playing against the the well-known famous poker players and you're at yeah. lights and there's cameras and they're staring you down. And I remember this one, I ran against Antonius. He's w- one foot away from me, just staring at me while I'm trying to bluff him. <laughs> and, and you don't, you want to have this kind of go to this kind of go to uh, routine that you do so that you're not giving away stuff or worried or whatever. And mm-hmm. the best is when you're bluffing and then you're so, you're, you're so focused on this card or the ace of hearts and then eventually you you forget that you're bluffing and you're, and you're just thinking about the ace of hearts and then and then time passes then you realize oh man i'm bluffing again and then that that little interim of, of that brief little bit of joy where you don't have to live in the moment which is getting stared down while you're running a big bluff um you know when you find that moment it lets you not have any tells because you don't even know what you're doing anymore you're just you're just you're just in the moment kind of you know, I don't know and do you have to do you have to train that you definitely have to train that how do you how do you train that? Do you just sit in your room looking at cards, trying not to flinch your face? I, I think you just have to get out there and play enough poker. And then every time that it happens, this is my routine. And you just mm-hmm. you just get better and better at it. I, I, I'm not good at meditating. When I try, I can only meditate for Nobody's minutes. good at meditating. If you Some are, you're are. freaking a superhero, you know? <laughs> yeah, but 
I, from what I've heard, it's kind of like that, how the more that you meditate, Mm -hmm. the more you're able to go deeper and longer and you're able to sort of clear your mind. I think it's kind of like that. It's a similar skill set, I imagine. Makes sense. And, and I guess for you, so I know you, you dropped out of college, you were playing poker, and you were doing a lot of it online. So was there a transition from you when you're going from online to in-person tournaments where you had to pick up that other skill set that you obviously seem to say is less important? And you're, hey, you're, you're the authority here. Sure. Uh, by the way, I like how we change roles. Now I'm getting interviewed. No, I, uh, I was just curious. I was just curious. <laughs> no, okay. So uh, it depends on who you ask. Some people said I had really bad tells at the start, and that's pro- probably true, and it got better over time. Some people still say I have terrible tells, and the thing about poker is poker has – well, I guess I would have said more shit talking. It probably does because it's, there's no absolutes, right? Let's say that someone's looked at as the best player. Mm-hmm. You can just say, fuck that guy. I'm a better player, and right. there's, no, there's no proof, right? Let's say right now I said, I said, oh, I'm better than you at chess. You could say, okay, well, pull up chess.com. Let's go. And then, and then, and then in, in, I either say no and look like an idiot or I do it and I lose. And so in about five minutes, we know very clearly that I'm not, right? My sister actually loves answering when they're like, who's the better chess player? She's like, well, Alex by rating, but me objectively. Like, wait, that doesn't make sense, but I love it. She's in the kitchen. She's smiling right now. Uh, objectively? <laughs> She hasn't peaked yet. That's what she keeps saying. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Nice. No, nice. I, I, I think she, she, she says subjectively or something like a meme, because obviously objectively it would be by rating, but she does it in a way that's very funny. That's that's funny. How close are you guys in rating? Um, Probably I'm like 200 points higher rated. Okay. So For now. There, you hear now. her in there. Yeah. Okay, Andrea. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that, that's actually pretty cool that you guys both play chess and uh, do you guys live together? Yeah, yeah, we do live together and we work together and we're siblings and we haven't killed each other yet, which is, uh, you know, pretty impressive accomplishment. That's good. I, I've not uh, killed either my siblings either. And that's because we're states away. So that's always yeah. good. It's nice to get that separation. Exactly. Um, is, that, is that cool having sort of like a, a, a that relationship with, with someone as close to you as your sister to kind of go through this together? Because, you know, sometimes I feel when you end up off the beaten path, and mm-hmm. I think it's safe to say you're definitely off the beaten path with your career it can feel a little bit lonely and there's not people sort of with you and you don't have that kind of core network. Um, is it cool to experience that with your sister? Yeah, I think it is because there are very particular challenges you have in this kind of job. And it, it kind of reminds me of how when people go into trying to start a company, you often have co-founders because it's so lonely and nobody else is really going to understand the problems you have day to day because it is so specific. And I do feel that with my sister. So that is super helpful. That's cool. It's good. It's good to have that. Um, I tried to teach my brother poker and it, I don't want to go too far down that road, but it didn't go well. We'll just leave, we'll leave really? it at that. My sister actually likes poker. We were kind of joking about studying I poker together. Nice. Good job, Andrea. Who'd you play with? George. She was playing with one of her, her yeah, YouTuber friends. Actually, poker is um, getting really popular right now on Twitch. There's a lot of high stakes head to head games. Um, Mr. Beast and Ludwig played one for uh, $25,000. Now there's another YouTuber who just flew in and he's playing against Mr. Beast for $50,000. But sometimes it just turns into pure gambling. So, Yeah, well, when two people that are recreational players play, it tends to get pretty gambly. What what were your thoughts on the event that we played down in Cabo, the 25K heads up that we played? Oh, they really pulled out all of the stops. It was so incredibly well organized. Um, and I felt flattered that I even got an invitation since obviously I was a noob. 
Um, but I like that it seems like Poker King is trying to get um, non-professionals into poker, which is what Chess did um, on Twitch by bringing these really big um, content personalities into it. It'd be nice to see poker start getting popular with non-poker players. I'm curious to see what that would look like. And I think that's where the trend is going on Twitch and at least over the next you know six months it's interesting to see the the renaissance that chess has had over the last couple of years with uh, mm-hmm. the, the queen's gambit um but it's weird to me because chess is so unforgiving for noobs in poker you can be a new player and you can step mm-hmm. in and you have a pretty good chance to win no matter who you are you you have a, a real chance to win that is not true in chess and so it's interesting to me, and it gives hope to have sort of a second secondary poker boom if we ever get some, you know, maybe the mm-hmm. U.S. in a national market or maybe some other country that doesn't allow poker, maybe we could have a boom down the road. It does surprise me that so many people have gotten into chess over the last couple of years. What? So I guess what caused it was the Queen's Gambit, right? What What, what has that last couple of years been like? I'll go into that first, but I will say... If you're somebody who's playing poker against someone else and, you know, you guys are equally ranked, let's say you have a 50-50 chance. But online, if you're getting ranked with somebody, you're let's say you're an 800, but you're getting paired with an 800, it's, it's similar, right? Um, I think it's more about being able to find someone who's in your rating range and seeing chess as something that could be fun because it's unforgiving for you, but it's also unforgiving for your opponent if they're at a similar rating. That's true. What makes poker very different is if I play someone or let's just say the best heads up player plays someone in a match and they're a complete noob and they just go all in every hand, they're still going to win 25 to 35% of the time. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I just randomly draw Magnus in in some game online, I'm not going to win that match 25% of the time. I'm not going to win that match 1% of the time. I'm I'm never going to win that match. So, well, actually internet outages, I don't know. know, Yeah, maybe he'll lose his internet. But I guess my point is that if you're doing skill-based matchmaking, then that kind of takes it and makes it fun. You're obviously not going to be the best player, but at least you can compete with people in your range and feel that progression and play in tournaments for people who are, let's say, under 1,600 or something like that. That's fair. Because uh, uh, otherwise, it's not fun. Yeah, you don't want to play people who you're just going to lose to every single time. That 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 is definitely true. I guess the cool thing about poker is that because... As you move up in stakes, the competition tends to be tougher. Mm-hmm. You only need money to buy in. You don't need a rating. You don't need any history. Mm-hmm. So you can have $100,000 tournaments with totally new players, yeah. or very recreational players that just don't care enough about $100,000. They just want to have the experience yeah. of it. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the skill versus luck you know, aspects here? I think what makes poker so great is that there is so much luck that... Mm-hmm. Anyone can step in, and if they do well, maybe they think they're really good, and it allows bad people to play longer because they don't understand they're actually being beaten, and it allows for lots of gambling. Not a lot of gambling in chess because you know who's better. In fact, there's a system that tells you who's better. Do you think chess could maybe use a little bit of luck added in there somehow? We need some RNG. Um, No, I mean, I think people like chess because it's a game of perfect information. Same how people like poker because you get a little bit of an adrenaline when you're betting and doing some gambling. But I I mean, obviously, poker, the the best poker players still tend to be the one who get more, you know, uh, bracelets at the WSOP and things like that. So obviously, there's a lot of skill that is involved. And even if um, you're you're gambling and getting lucky, the best players are still going to end up being the best players with a few exceptions 
I I actually like, or or maybe you disagree with that, but I think a lot of chess players actually do like gambling. They like betting on games or giving odds or things like that. I I don't think it'd be fun to add randomness to chess because that's not what people. That's not what I like about chess. I like that what determines who wins in chess is how good and how prepared you are and how you're going against your opponent. I love that about it. Um, it, it also makes you get a lot more tough on yourself if you make a mistake because you have nobody to blame but yourself. And there is a little bit of luck in chess. Like, let's say you fall into a line that your opponent prepared with his computer and his coach and, you know, you're just out of the book and it happened and it's a position he happens to understand more and something just happened that you got into it. Um, but I I, 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 I I like poker and chess, and I think a lot of chess players can just uh, add gambles on the side when they're playing. Yeah, I saw you adding some gambles, but that was a pretty, pretty unique spot because you and Dan Smith have almost the same rating, right? So it's a very fair bet if you guys bet. Yeah, but he, he actually usually usually beats me in blitz. Um, so I'm, I am I beat him in bullet. He beats me in blitz. Classical or FIDE were pretty cl- were, were similar in rating. We played one tournament together in Iceland, and we were just sitting next to each other the entire tournament. We'd move up and move down, and I'd always just see Dan Dan Smith to my left. That that's very that's very cute. Uh, yeah. I actually um, on a flight back from Australia to the U.S. I love telling this story because it makes Dan upset. Oh, that's um, great. That's he's never great. said that, but I know it does. I love seeing uh, Dan flustered. It just gives me such great, great happiness. It's honestly great. Uh, he played me blindfolded, and I just did some really aggressive stuff out of the out of the gate. I don't I don't know what opening it was. It's too long ago. And he, he was just panicking because he's blindfolded, so he can't see the board. And he's just, I never thought of this. He was just <laughs> panicked. And then I just did some seven one, and it was the most glorious moment because he's just so much better at chess than me. Uh, and and then we played unblindfolded just to let him get his confidence back, you know, just yeah. to let him have one. And yeah, I, I didn't I didn't do so hot in that one, but um, he's he's very good at chess. Yeah, yeah, no, Dan Dan is really solid at chess, and he's been playing for a really long time. So I I, I agree. I think Dan is is good at chess he he's sometimes studies too he plays classical tournaments and as we all know having played for a long time makes you good we kind of talked about that earlier um well it so does it does it, it it can't hurt um i want to ask about your thoughts on the uh the world championships in chess because that's mm-hmm. i think the moment where I, I, at least i i'm most likely to tune in a lot of people tune in mm-hmm. and i've watched the last couple of world championships and i think of the last 24 classical games there have only been two that were not draws, and two of two of the twenty four games. Uh, mm-hmm. it, of course, when it was tied and went into the the rapid games or the is it blitz or rapid? Uh, first rapid, then blitz. Okay, so when it gets in the rapid, then I think people um, tend to win a little bit more often. Do you feel that it, it's? I guess as as a casual chess fan, it just seems really boring. Oh man, the world championship! I can't wait to watch this. I watch for three weeks and nobody wins a game. It just it just feels kind of boring what are your thoughts on how drawish the classical format has kind of become and it also feels like they don't even fight it out in a lot of those games they just kind of will just agree to chop this one and move on to the next i mean i think it's a fair criticism as a spectator i would disagree with the latter where they feel like they don't you know battle it out because there's so much going into their calculations like they have to be playing 14 games they need to keep up their stamina um they need to be optimizing for the positions where they feel like they have a really good chance to actually win and if that that is not the case then they'll just call it for another day uh, there's also strategy like would magnus have a better chance if he gets into the rapid or the blitz so is he okay with that um but 
that's that's the thing. When chess is played accurately, the game is going to be a draw. And these are two of the best players in the world, one of the greatest players of all time. So they're just playing very accurate chess, and it's really hard to crack the opponent. Um, so even though it might be less exciting to watch as a spectator, it's just part of the game nowadays. And hey, if you want excitement, then look at the World Rapid Championship or the World Blitz Championship. That's always super fun. Um, but the World Chess Championship has always been, you know, about the purity, about super high accuracy. And I think people have to appreciate the fact that you're going against such a hard opponent and none of them are making enough mistakes for it to be a decisive game. That's a good that's a good way of looking at it. I guess I'm specifically tilted because I think it was I think it was uh four years ago. I watched the entire Karyakin Magnus match. Yeah. And then on the the so I think I ended up full full draw, right? Yeah. All the way through. And yeah. then the day that they did the rapids, I actually had a dentist appointment <gasps> and then it started during the dentist appointment. So I'm getting some work done. I have my phone, I'm just trying to sweat. <laughs> At the dentist's office, you start going to put your phone. I'm like, yeah. hold on, Magnus is winning. <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh, I watched everything and I'm missing the moment that actually matters. I was so tilted. Oh yeah. my god, that was so. May- maybe that just just tilts me a little bit more than most people. The other thing I wanted to say about watching chess uh, on stream is, I think that sometimes poker players use too mm-hmm. much poker language when they talk about poker and what's happening. But chess, you guys are, it's unbelievable. I, I tune in and then within 30 seconds, I, I no longer know what anyone is saying. It might as well be in a different language. People are B3, C7, and just, just yeah. all these squares are getting thrown around. And then all these terms are getting thrown around. And then it's also advanced concepts are getting thrown around. Do you feel maybe that, well, chess seems to be doing fine with recreational players anyway. But That's because really there see- was a big shift. Um, and this big shift came after the pandemic. So actually, you asked this question earlier, and I didn't answer it. But it, it wasn't actually Queen's Gambit that gave chess the first boom. It was the pandemic. People play more chess when they're at home. And chess.com had something like 2x more um, users signing up every single day two months after the pandemic. So that gave them the initial boost. And then it blew up on Twitch before the pandemic. And then a lot of Twitch streamers who are casual started playing chess. And what the commentators quickly started learning is that you had to take out the jargon because the average person is just not going to understand. You don't want to be doing very difficult variations. You just want to explain the main idea in that position. So it could be something like, this is the opening. What white needs to do is just take out their pieces and get their king to safety as fast as possible, while also being careful to not fall to this one pin there, draw an arrow, put a red you know, square on the one piece. And that's about it. You don't want to go more than that because it's not going to make sense. Um, and I, you know, maybe it's gone too far in that direction where sometimes you're not even just talking about the chess. You're talking about the players, the personalities. People are yelling and screaming at the same time. It's just, it's gone very much towards, you know, recreational players. Um, so maybe there's going to be more of a healthy balance for things like the world chess championship, but I think it has been helpful because the biggest issue with enjoying watching chess is the barrier to entry and actually understanding some of these basic concepts and even having it be fun if you don't know what's going on. There's always that balance, that balancing act. Who are you trying to cater to? And yeah, this is something that I do in poker. I'll be analyzing a hand or commenting on a hand and I'll realize I'm getting way too into the weeds and this is unnecessary and most people are not following me anymore. Mm-hmm. But I feel I need to sort of be true to myself and say the things that are actually going on. Oh, in this spot, this range has an advantage because of these factors. This size mm-hmm. makes sense because of this, the way that the range is distributed across the curve. And then the average person, 
he's got kings what's going on and, you know they, they yeah. don't want to hear about well, this you might have a, but then you you have a very specific audience that is taking chess pretty seriously right if uh, sorry poker pretty seriously if they're watching your videos if they're on upswing well upswing members for sure but if they're mm-hmm. if they're watching my youtube videos i think the average poker hands video i mean i don't know how many people got watched one of those 200k 300k whatever it was mm-hmm. the average person there is not a really good player obviously they're a very casual player as mm-hmm. you get more views that's just kind of the, the nature of the beast yeah so so you're always trying to walk this line as someone that's an expert in something of i don't want to i, I want to give enough in depth here to where people that are you know watching that know what's going on they don't feel it's too dumb for them or it's being toned down too much but then mm-hmm. i also don't want to sound too complicated so that the people that are very casual watching are annoyed by the fact that i'm just yeah. throwing all this jargon at them that doesn't make sense and i'm wasting their time there's this real sweet spot and the reality is that you probably just have to go for the simpler approach because most people, if, if, if a lot of people are watching something, most of them are casual. I mean, yeah. it's the same thing with sports on TV. The football commentators just say stupid shit all the time. And that might be because, no offense to football commentators, but they're pretty dumb and just in general. Ouch, Doug! <laughs> I, I, it just, it, it's pretty clear cut. Um, or or whenever, so the classic example is, I don't know if you follow football at all, but people punt mm-hmm. on fourth down way too much. So basically... You're supposed to be aggressive on the last down and go over first downs, but people don't because I don't know, it's good to be conservative or something. And so the commentators will say, Oh, you got to punt here. You, you got to make them put points on the board or whatever dumb nonsense. The reality is, dude, you're on TV saying words. Some guy with a calculator should be solving this. Like, why do you even think you get, why do you think you get, your opinion matters here in any capacity? You know what I'm but saying? You're this a is- very specific person who is watching, right? Exactly. That, yeah, you're you're not their target audience you're not the average football watcher definitely true but that's kind of the point that i'm making i think when you're an expert and you're trying to compensate something there's mm-hmm. a real balancing act there and, and chess seems to be maybe the peak of that where what's happening for an advanced player what's going on in their mind mm-hmm. is it, it, there's so much happening that and when i watch some of the streams of the more advanced players commentating they're just trying to get it all out there. There's so many things happening. There's so many concepts in play. There's there's mm-hmm. all these t- there's tactical thinking, and then there's strategic mm-hmm. thinking, and then there's sort of rules of thumb. But then they, they don't apply in this scenario because of this thing, and yeah, and then they're just throwing all this out there. And you think, oh my god, how do these people know all of this stuff? And and it's all so complicated. And you're you're still trying to figure out the one pin that was in the red circle and arrow. Like, what was going on with that? It's I feel chess is. Um, Chess might be the largest gap between what's happening for the pros that are watching and I think what people are maybe able to understand as a recreational audience. Exactly. I mean, sometimes you just have to simplify things because you could explain the actual... Con- yeah, you're you're just cutting out so much of the juice because if you start explaining it, you're going to lose the audience. Um, and I, I think that's why certain... If, if you're a player watching the World Championship who's, you know, over 1,800, then maybe you want to watch someone like Peter Fiddler commentate. But if you're an 800 and you're excited and you want to watch, then you're going to watch on, you know, chess.com where you have someone basic explaining it. And I, I, I can say that because I've explained before, so it's okay. <laughs> I appreciate that you keep trying to give me an 1,800 rating that I don't have, but in, in the, in the uh, spirit of full transparency, I do not have an 1,800 rating. I don't have any rating, so I don't want it to seem like I'm going along with this. The first one I was going to let slide, but I'm I'm probably much worse than that, and I don't I've never not had an official rating since I was a kid, so I'm I'm not okay. I'll stop I'll stop giving you an official rating. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just let's just lower that lower that down uh, s- substantially. So so going back to poker, 
you've recently been playing a poker mm-hmm. on a bunch of different shows. You kind of you've kind of jumped right in. I don't think you have that much poker experience before these events. You can correct just me. Just casually. Wrong. I didn't study poker. I just like playing, you know, with friends, which is very different because, you know, friends playing with my sister. My sister has cards and she goes like you know, her, her lips start curling upwards. I know exactly what she has. It's it's very obvious. It's more just reading your friends and family when you're playing with people um, or just playing in social circles. So, yeah, I didn't have a lot of formal um, poker experience, but my dad did teach me how to play when I was young as well. And we would just play for fun or he'd be playing with um, people from his work and he'd be like, hey, Alex, take over. I have to go. I was 12. And then I had no idea. I got lucky and I beat everybody in his work and he won the tournament. And then he was just so happy. He went, he's like, oh, my 12 year old daughter beat all of you guys. And it's like, that's what I love about poker. That can happen, you know? That, so I didn't realize you're actually, you're actually, you've trained for years. I didn't, I thought you were more of a recreational player. Maybe you've been a pro the whole time. No, no, no. What, what, what have, have you been enjoying these recent uh, games that you've played? And then is, do you find it at all? scary to jump into games with a lot of professional players a lot of very good players and then seemingly they're all televised in some capacity or streamed or whatever it is do, do you find it um you know unnerving at, at, in any capacity to be sort of jumping right in and, and sort of putting yourself out there in that way where you know obviously poker is a tough game you're going to make mistakes mm-hmm. uh what's that experience like and and um i guess how do you find it yeah well, when I play terribly and I make really basic dumb mistakes, I feel like an idiot. For example, um, the one that we were uh, actually together on on Up Only, the crypto poker event. And first, I mean, I, I played terribly and I don't like making excuses, but I was in New York. My internet kept dying. I was trying to stream it and I had woken up after like three hours of sleep and I just played terribly. And and then I started getting tweets from people like, oh, you're such a fish. You suck so much. Just a ton of random stuff. And then even when I went on the stream after, people were like, girl is dumb. Girl is dumb. They just kept spamming. I'm like, wow, some people are are, are really idiots. And that one kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, but only temporarily, you know? And then sometimes you go and things are televised and you get really lucky and you win it. But you're like, oh yeah, I'm glad people are going to be able to see this one. That was pretty cool. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I I try not to get too happy when I win and not too sad when I lose because that's, you know, the situation of the game. I just want to learn to improve and actually enjoy the process. The thing with poker for me and in in general, I I mean, I honestly, I haven't studied chess seriously since I was like 17 or 18. I'm basically a retired chess player who makes content. Um, And hit hit me right (laughs) in the feels with that one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I, I I mean, it's true because the thing is, I get really obsessive when I get competitive. And right now, you know, I was competitive about not being a chess player, but I was competitive about content. I wanted to do really well. When I started streaming chess on Twitch, I wanted to become a top Twitch streamer, not in terms of just chess players, but break out into other things. That was the goal. It wasn't to get better at chess. Um, but when I start playing poker in games like this, I really want to be able to study and get better because the thing that makes me feel better when I make a mistake is learning from it. Um, and it's just not super fun for me to compete in things where there are professional players unless I'm actually training. That's why it's fun if it's casual and I'm playing noobs or other people who are my similar skill, then it's fine and I can enjoy it. But if I'm going to go up against people who know what they're doing, I want to get better myself. And I yeah. feel like poker is one of those games that I could really go down the, the rabbit hole and get get weight it would take so much time to get get decent so yeah i should probably stay away from that um yeah 
you're preaching to the choir here. I think I mean, so many of those things hit home for me, the having played more than going into the content and then the competitive drive. This is something that I, I've been trying to work on over the last couple of years of just taking a step back. And it, it almost hurts to even say the sentence, but being okay, being bad at things. Um, it's it's just so hard for me to do that. And sometimes I just need to be okay. It's all right, Doug. This is not your, your career. It's okay right. to be bad at things. Right. But the way that I feel is, I have to then just go way harder on this. But but also what I found as I'm in my 30s now is my energy is just a little bit lower. Things are still good, but I have mm-hmm. a little less energy to just grind it out all the, all the time. And then also as you find success, there's less of that need. I think in my early 20s, it was I need to be able to pay. I need to be able to survive and afford mm-hmm. things and, and establish sort of a foothold in the world. And then you get there and then you realize that you kind of have to pick your battles. And it's really tough to do that. And it's really tough to do that with content. That's one of the reasons why I started doing this podcast was this is, this is a, a format where uh, I just I look forward to doing it. I have a lot of people on that I, I like to talk That's to. That's what I like about on. what you do. I feel like you're really driven by passion, not by money. You do the things you want. And I mean, obviously, you're, you know, you, you've done pretty well for yourself in poker. Thank so you. you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. But it's very clear when someone is doing something for pure reasons. Well, thank you. I, I like to I like to think so. Um, I just, I, I have to sort of, I be, I guess, be authentic to myself. And mm-hmm. um, that's why when I did those, it, this is my last poker video. In my heart, it was, but it just didn't end up being. So, you know, maybe the, the audience knew better than it's I okay did. To, it's okay to change your mind. It is. Yeah, it's totally You're totally still being fine. authentic to yourself, you know? Exactly. That's what I tell myself every night. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, so with poker, it, it is it is one of those things where you're you're never going to master it. I mean, it's it's kind of like chess. You're never going to play perfectly every mm-hmm. game. You're just not going to. I mean, even the the top guys, I'm sure, make when when I say a mistake, they make much less of a mistake than maybe I would make or or even you would make. But um, they still do have you know inaccuracies where they could have played better. Um, p- poker is, I, I think, even harder to play to play perfectly because so mm-hmm. many spots if you played it perfectly you would know that oh, okay it's going to be uh raised to this size 9.2 percent of the time raised to this size 14 percent of the time rest call and a and lot then- of that you have to memorize or just do by playing and reviewing hands right you have to put in a lot of hours to have seen those before to know when they come up yeah there are certain things that you just learn let, let me just give you a, a a really basic example okay so mm-hmm. let's say we're playing heads up and we're 100 mm-hmm. blinds deep mm-hmm. and you open i3 bet you call, so we mm-hmm. see a flop, and there's uh, two cards uh, as a um, two tone flop. So there's a flusher on the flop, mm-hmm. and I bet you call, and the turn completes the flush. Okay. So there's that three three clubs out there. Let's say, if I check and you bet, solvers in that spot like to use a geometric check raise size, which means they check raise to a size where the river bet will be the equal size of the pot as a proportion of the pot. Um, and, and they tend to do that with, um, a reasonable frequency. Let's just say it depends on the board. Obviously, let's just say 15% or something. There's no way you're going to know that unless you have spent a bunch of time. Yeah. It's, that it's not spot. something like, oh yeah, intuitively this makes no. a lot of sense. Like, wait, what? Okay. Yeah. There's just no way. And then some, some turns because the artificial player will be betting more often. Um, maybe they check raise a little less often when they do check or, or whatever the reason is why they check whatever they do. But mm-hmm. the point is you just simply can't. You simply can't hit that without having spent time doing it. And think about how specific we're talking about. So open, that's pretty standard, but then three bet and then a call. Mm-hmm. So three bet pot, then flop bet, and then turn flush, and then check range, then you bet. And so we're so far down the game tree. Yeah. And you have to have done that in all of the lines. So you can you can potentially dig. You can just go so deep. You can spend thousands of hours, and, and you're still going to just butcher spots all the time. Right. And that's what's humbling about poker is – 
you get in all these weird spots. And then, you know, when you have a big decision that you have to make, you don't just get to say, you know what, guys, eh, not for me. I'm not going to have to make, you know, you have to deal with this shit you got yourself into now. Now I have to like get myself out or I have to fold or I have to bluff or I have to call or whatever I have to do. Um, and so it's just, it, it, it's so, 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 so hard. And it's more about hitting kind of broad strokes. So like the example I just gave, well, now, you know, okay, well, when there's three of the flush out there in that spot, sometimes when I have one of the suit and I check, I should check raise bluff and sometimes bluff the river. And when I have a flush in that spot, I should sometimes take this line too, so that I have value. That would just be the the simple, simple thing you could take away. But now you have to think about how to do that in a balanced ratio, realize that your opponent gets good odds. You can't bluff a lot. How do I which bluffs candidates tend to get chosen over other ones. There's just so much that you have to think about in those situations. And, and that's why there's, it's, it's really turned into maybe a little like chess in a way, like what you were saying earlier, where the guys that study the hard guys or girls that study yeah. the hardest, they, they're going to be the ones that have the advantage because if you just spend enough hours really learning this stuff, you're going to have the advantage over the guy that doesn't. And that's why yeah. in my challenge with Negranu I, I I knew my heads up game had already gotten to a point where I could get really in the weeds on stuff like that, whereas he has to kind of take it from scratch. And so by the time we're playing, I'm I'm learning stuff like that. And for him to get there, he has to kind of do so many other things that he has to learn just to be able to be at that point. Um, and so it has become way more about preparation and, right. and know, knowing before long before that turn is dealt the way that you have to be playing it. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of, of opening preparation in chess. Um, like there, there's just certain lines that are really tricky. They're not going to be intuitive. You have to have looked at them a couple of times or similar ones to even understand the idea. Sometimes you'll be on like move 16 of theory and your opponent actually read the book and knows what to do there and how to explain like, oh, okay, well, this is unfortunate. Um, they, they're uh, I, just more prepared than you are sometimes. Are there moments where you get to a, a part of a line where you prepared and you're thinking, I really hope they fall for this? And then there's oh, in tournament games, absolutely. I'm like, oh yeah, we're on move 15. You prepare for this. He does this. I know I'm going to be plus point two, and I'm really going to stick it to him, or like whatever, plus two point oh or something. And it's really exciting when they fall into your prep. But I've also had times where I've prepared like five hours for a grandmaster. You know, he plays e4 98 percent of the time. He plays me. He goes d4. I'm like, fuck because <laughs> he knows that yeah because he's yeah. playing if you're playing that's the cool thing if you're a higher rated player you can just play something really different just so that you're like you know what let's just play chess i'm not gonna let you get into home preparation i'm gonna play something else that i don't know as well but i just know i'm better than you are at chess and i'm gonna end up winning you can make it a brawl yeah i mean that. I, that's what i did so I, I played timex in iceland and i knew he was being trained by um eric hansen um who was a grandmaster and he was gonna and he knew all of my variations so i was like you know what? i'm just gonna play something that i don't normally play so that whatever hours he wasted on preparation they're just not gonna come into play and he and, and that's what ended up happening very nice. also maybe he had spent too much of his time shooting free throws instead of uh instead of preparing for a chess did you hear about that bet i did i did i i i've i actually visited um mike with the chess bras before and i saw his basketball thing when he was talking about it. i was like wow he just has so much free time is this what it's like to have made it in life or something <laughs> answer yes answer, yeah. but, but also be a really sharp person because he yeah he, he just gets the better end of every bet yeah, of everything yeah. that he does all the time. Actually, he was yeah. on the podcast uh, a few weeks I listened ago. to it. I listened to it. I mean, I, I, I like poking him, but I, I have a lot of respect for Mike, obviously. And he actually also helped um, do a heads-up game when I was in Cabo and gave me tips. So I really appreciated that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's one of the one of the sharpest guys that I know. 
Uh, he's just he's just always seems to be on the right side of everything, yeah. including yeah. the crypto punks thing. Yes, and what I love about Mike is that he always calls out people on Twitter. So I, I think it was it was like the the CEO or the founder of Mixpanel. He's like uh, Ethereum is going to flip Bitcoin. I'd really bet that. And then Mike's like, Oh yeah, you want to bet? And he just goes and provokes people and tries to get their money where their mouth's at every single time. And I love that. You, that's one of the best parts about the poker community is yeah. that you have to be willing to put money down when you say something, because yeah. if you say, Oh, this is, you know, you, you say Bitcoin or yeah, Ethereum's going to overtake Bitcoin. And then, mm-hmm. and then you say, okay, I'll bet you that it, it won't. And they say, Oh no, no, I'm not going to bet. You just, you yeah. just like an idiot. Exactly. Because, because you just said something, you clearly didn't believe it. And you to clearly, a public audience. Now you're not replying to it, you know, but every other space other than poker from what I found uh, I mean, a lot of the video gamers that I've talked to, basically, I guess I'm really talking about video games, but I've seen it in cryptocurrency circles and stuff as well. A lot of times people will just not bet on it because they don't bet or they don't gamble. But in my mind, if you say something and then you're not willing to even bet on it and we can mm-hmm. do small, even if it's 10 bucks, right? Even if it's just something, if you're yeah. not willing to put anything on your beliefs, how much are your beliefs worth? Should I really even be listening to you? Exactly. Exactly. I totally agree with that. And um, you're right. It is really unique to poker. Timex has specifically had a really weird arc, and I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna misremember the story a little bit, but I'm I'm getting the the broad strokes here. And of course, I'm sure Mike will correct me if I'm wrong in this. But I think he invested in the stock market right before uh, the crash happened, ten-ish years ago or so. That one of the bigger um, corrections, and he was so tilted that he he just started to invest in nittier stuff because he just didn't or he, he basically just didn't like what happened with that investment there. Mm-hmm. And since then, he's now full steam NFTs. You know, how far oh, yeah. we've come? Oh how yeah, how far we've come? What are, what are your thoughts on the NFT stuff? Have you been following these markets at all? Yeah, I mean, I I'm a non JPEGer. I told you this. You know, I think we're both crying a little bit together because I was looking at CryptoPunks and I didn't, and I, I, I didn't, which kind of still stings a little bit. But it kind of reminds me of like speculating on art right now. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, particular use cases that are going to stay around for the long term. And there are cool things that the technology is going to enable. But that's what it feels like right now. It's just too hot. And if I'm not going to be paying attention to it every single day, because, you know, I have a full-time job. I don't want to be putting my money into it right now. If there's ways to invest in the infrastructure, like I, I recently just wrote an angel check into Eternal GG. They're a startup that's building um, an NFT marketplace for creators. That's a little bit more comfortable um, because then I don't have to, like, pick picking stocks or something like that. I just don't have enough information or time to be focusing on it all the time to feel confident. Like, oh, yeah, penguins are, what's, are what are going to take off right now. Or like, oh, those rocks are doing great or the loot. Um, but I have been paying attention to it, and I think there's a lot of cool uses in gaming, and I have been thinking more about those as well, but I'm still basically forming my theses. What about yourself? I made a big mistake here, and a few years ago, I thought, you know what, NFTs are going to be big. And mm-hmm. then rather doing the logical thing, which would be to buy the NFTs that would be valuable, which by the way, if I had done, I don't even know how much money I would have made. Rather than doing that, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to join and help finance the launching of an NFT platform that has still yet to launch um, t- to this day. Uh, it's close. It's we're closing in on it. Uh, okay. Pastel Network. Okay. Uh, it's its own blockchain. We forked off Anime Coin. Uh, year, years years have been spent here. I, we'll see what ends up happening, but um, yeah, mistakes were made, and uh, and here we are today. I, as for like what I think about a lot of these, I, I think that the original ones, I think that the CryptoPunks, mm-hmm. k- kind of the rocks, I, I think some of the things like that, I think they're going to retain a good chunk of value for NFTs. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there could be some big swings there. But I do think that if you look ahead, let's just say 10, 15, 20 years, NFTs are only going to become more well-known. Maybe they won't become a lot more valuable than they are today because the prices mm-hmm. are pretty high. But as the demand increases for these, I think the prices go up. And then if you look at the scarcity of the top ones, what what is the coolest NFT worth when you think about it? What's that worth to someone when you know maybe you're a collector or maybe you're already worth billions of dollars or, or hundreds of millions or whoever it is that's interested in buying these? It's the kind of people that don't really need the money, but they do really love the item and love what it represents and maybe love the, the community it comes from. It's kind of like baseball cards, obviously. That's the one yeah. that gets yeah. drawn to. I think the dumbest argument I hear in the NFT uh, t- uh, conversation is, you don't even actually own the picture. It's okay. That's that's not the point here. I mean, I yeah, can print yeah. the Mona Lisa, put it on my wall. I don't own the Mona Lisa, right? The, mm-hmm. the the point is that you you provably own the token. So, I guess I guess I would say I think I'm a long term. I'm I'm bullish on them. I think I'm short term kind of bearish because the the rise of them has been so meteoric. And whenever I see that in crypto, I always just get a little okay. Let's let's mm-hmm. kind of see how this plays out because so many things have gone spiked massive and then they end up busting or they lose 90% of their value or whatever. Uh and we're already starting to see the empty market kind of, you know, get hit pretty hard over the last week or two. I mean it was yeah. it was it was a matter of time. I, I think that the the countdown on that was really if you think about how much money and just gas and minting fees or how much gas basically how much was being taken out of the economy every day. I mean it's millions of dollars on just mm-hmm. minting these things. Yep. You can only take so much money out of this economy before it's going to take a hit. Yeah, no, I I think that's that's very fair. And actually one thing that was crazy, I came back to Austin and there was a billboard by the UT Austin Stadium that says this is an NFT. And it was just, obviously NFTs are blowing up right now, but you always see it online and it's crazy to see parts of online culture seeping into the physical world. So that was very fascinating. But in general, I agree with you on the long term. And I remember when I was looking into CryptoPunks and asking people what they thought, everybody's take was like, yeah, I think they're going to be around for a while. I just don't know if this is the correct price to buy right now. So there's certainly these um, historic NFTs that I think are going to be very valuable in the long run, but I just never try to predict short-term prices or anything like that. I remember having that exact conversation when they were worth 30K at, yeah. at the floor. And then they 10X. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, and, and then I started to feel a little bit like I think people might have felt about Bitcoin where, well, if I didn't buy it at 30 and I didn't buy it at 100, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't come in at 300 now. That just seems I have to stick to my guns at this point. I have to ride this one out, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, at one point, I was considering doing something like a party DAO to buy a CryptoPunk and then tie it to my brand and then fractionalize it and give it away partly to my audience nice. um, because a lot of you know creators are doing some kind of tokens, but it doesn't have any kind of inherent value. So tying it to an NFT that people have some kind of value to that isn't a currency itself would be kind of interesting. And then you can give away part of the NFT and then make it on transaction fees. But then I was like, okay, no, I'm going too deep into it again. Like, let's not risk things and combine stuff. So I just backed away and <laughs> try not to get too excited. That That's a very creative <laughs> process to try and add some value to NFTs. And there is, I'm, I'm sort of torn on this, the adding real world value to NFTs, mm. if that's gimmicky or actual value, because mm-hmm. let me give you an example. Um, I'm not proud of this, okay? One of my only- I NFT, love it when sentences start with that. I'm not proud of this. One of the only, the only NFT I've ever bought is uh, from Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary Vaynerchuk, yeah. V Friends. V Friends, right. And, and, and it's so scammy what they do. 
they take a 10% fee on any transfer. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, honestly, it's just a scam. Please don't yeah. buy this. Yeah, I, I, I have that, that's that's how that's how people make money off of it because they give it away, but they're just making money on the transaction volume. Yeah. So basically, I just I just had a friend who said, "Look, he's going to pump these. Just we got to believe in this. Mm-hmm. He's going to pump these." So I said, "All right, fuck it. I'm in for I don't know some whatever, just uh, a little bit. I'm in for I'm in for a taste." And um, the market's been pumping, and and I've, I've been slowly getting out of my positions, and and it's I mean it's continued it's continued to gone up. Who knows where it's going to go? But mm-hmm. what what he's doing with those are they represent tickets that you can use to go to his conference. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, ten yeah. ten percent fee that's just such a scam. It's such an unbelievable scam. And I was a part of the scam. Right. I paid him ten percent. I mean, part of what crypto's whole ethos is is you're trying to cut out the transactions in the middleman, and that's why we're trying to create this new you know, world fi- financial system. And then you have just people making money off the transactions and it's going completely against the foundation. Um, but again, everybody likes making money and seeing opportunities. So I don't blame you, Doug. Uh, and and I, this is what it's, a lot of NFTs right now just remind me of like technology in search of a problem and people just trying to apply it to every single situation because it's a hot area right now. Um, one of them that I was, have you seen Stoner Cats? mm so Stoner Cats, I think, was the first NFT project to try to fund a show. It was in Hollywood. Vitalik Buterin is actually one of the voice actors for it. Mila Kunis was involved. Ashton Kutcher. I, um, saw, I saw them hanging out in that one. That video was so funny. It was so Gabe, funny. Gabe, what's this? And then he goes, <laughs> and he awkwardly moves to get to start talking about Ethereum. There's an awkwardness to when he started talking about Ethereum that I just I just cried. I watched it so many times how funny that clip was. It was it, it was fantastic, um, but the the project is kind of cool. You have to own a cat to watch it, and it's just um, allowing shows to get funding through NFT projects, an easier way to crowd crowdfund. But then you go into the Discord, and again, the reason why people are holding the cats and the only thing they're talking about is like, oh, these are going to grow up in value. These are going to go up in value. This is going to be the first one that funded a show, and it's just when you know n- over ninety percent of the arguments I see for holding it is more like a Ponzi scheme and trying to make money in the future. It's and I'm not, it's it's really early. It's really early. Doesn't that all start to feel like they're trying to circumvent the law by essentially raising funds through this manner, where it's in it's it's really a, a it feels like a security to me. I don't know what a security mm-hmm. is is really up for yeah. debate, I guess these days. But you're buying a cat that represents the funding to create yep. a show, and and is, and, is that and, and, and no, it, it it is something that is is very suspicious because if people are buying it with the thought that it's going to go up in value, right? Then it should be falling into some kind of legal gray area. I do think it's complete bullshit that the government gets to decide who can and can't invest in things. And you have to hit certain thresholds and criteria in order Mm -hmm. to be allowed to invest in something. The government should not be able to say, hey, you, you don't know enough about money because you don't have enough. So you can't invest in things. That's ridiculous. To be an accredited investor, you have to have a net worth of over a million dollars or income of over 250k a year. Yep. Oh, so people that that don't have those things, they they don't they know less than the rich people. That that's not even true a lot of the time. And on top of it, it's my goddamn money. You shouldn't get to decide who, what I can. If I want to put mine into some cats, fuck it, let's go, meow. I, I, yeah. whatever, you know, I, I, I mean, this is uh, just I guess on where, what you think the role of government should be and how much control they should. I, I don't know. I, I don't need to get into your political views, but it feels like you don't think government should have a say. And I'm I'm generally um, I, I, I'm generally of the same agreement. But then I've also seen a lot of people I care about make really dumb decisions in crypto and get scammed. Um, but the thing is, they could do this regardless. So why 
why is the government even trying to control us? I, I generally agree with you. I find it pretty weird that you have to be an accredited investor to get into a lot of these deals. And I do like that crypto is trying to solve that problem, but I'm curious what's going to happen with regulators later on. I, what ended up happening with um, the big ruckus that was going on on Twitter with the government trying to um, get into regulations with even wallets and, and taxing them for every transaction and having to require them getting the information from all their users? Um, so... My understanding is it passed the Senate because that one Alabama senator didn't get his, his military funding, so it went to the House. Yeah. But then I think that there was some clarity added in the language. I think there was some clarity added where it wasn't going to affect minors. Um, mm. And so I think that that was the main worry was the way that it would affect minors. And I think that right. was cleared up. I don't, I don't remember who exactly said that, but I remember reading something about how it wasn't going to be nearly as drastic or dire as the wording was because the wording was very unclear. It made it sort of that anyone mm -hmm. that sort of had these assets was a broker in a way. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But a, but a miner's not a broker. They're just facilitating transactions. So exactly. I think I think someone cleared it up and I, and I think it's not right. going to be the end of the world. I think. But, it, but, it, but it was really nice to see that Congress was actually willing to try to work together with people who knew what was going on in the industry and actually find a way to regulate it properly. Totally agree. And I'm not a big Ted Cruz fan, but... When he when he got up, to, I hey actually guys. played poker with him. Oh, <laughs> on did? poker after dark. Oh, that's cool. You were part of that game. Helmuth was <laughs> yeah. there too, right? Yeah, Helmuth was there too. He was really funny. <laughs> what, what what is Ted Cruz like? Um, he was really polite in person. Um, I and I usually just yeah, uh, people get really upset whenever you do anything with a political figure on Twitch or something like that. But I'm like, you know what, guys, this is a game. Not everything is about politics. And as an individual, he was just polite. He was pretty good at poker. Um, he called he called my all in when I had pocket queen, so I really appreciated that. What do you have? Um, he had like ace king or something. I don't know. He had two high oh. cards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Ace king walking back to Houston. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know uh, if they call that or not, but yeah, um, I think that's from a book somewhere. Um, I'll take your word on it. It. Your guess is as good as mine there. But anyway, going going back to some of the utility on the NFTs, I think that um, I think that the the novelty of pairing it something in the real world is interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember Mike when he came on was talking about what if you could just sort of buy Greenland uh, as a token, uh, and the the problem sort of becomes a custodial issue too. Where do you store these things? Where do people lose them? Mm -hmm. I worry about that stuff. And and also, let's say you buy you know a pair of shoes and you get a, an official shoe token with it. It just it feels to me that this stuff is just gimmicky. And what I kind of like about CryptoPunks in a way is that, hey, this is nothing. It's a picture and you can prove you own this picture. It's a little character on the internet. That's it. There's no gimmick. It just, yep. it, this is what it is. And so there's an honesty to that that I feel like when you try and just tag random kind of crap to these things, not that going to a conference or seeing your shoes on the blockchain is random crap, but you know, random crap. It just starts to yeah. feel maybe you're diluting what sort of the whole thing is about. But you know, what do I know? No, I I agree with that. I think it's gimmicky when you try to give some utilities for NFT that goes into the physical world. I think it's much less gimmicky when you're trying to give NFTs utility in the metaverse or what you're trying to build towards. Like for example, um, how if you have a, a crypto punk and you put it as your twitter avatar it's doing some kind of signaling but as we move towards the kind of future where people are spending more and more of their time online and actually care about what kind of virtual assets they have or being led into online clubs and things like that then that utility 
it, it makes a lot more sense if it's on online. What's an online club? Um, an online club like chess.com or board ape yacht club i know they're trying to add some certain certain people are working on projects related to it where you could do things with your board apes or like make games out of them and things like that um or where you only get access if you to an online community if you own some kind of token okay that yeah i could see that being i could see that being a thing but is this really the way that this was supposed to be used i mean i think about skins for example that industry is Mm -hmm. huge Mm-hmm. I played. I played a lot of Counter Strike in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, the skin, the skin industry is massive, and right. that that kind of makes sense to me because you get to show everyone, look at my cool gun. But needing the token to enter a game, it's just it's sort of almost just a variable price. But it, on- it doesn't have to be that. It could also be if you're part of a game and you've spent a lot of time into it. Instead of that item existing only in the game, being able to get some kind of value of it outside, like being able to to sell it to somebody else or rent it out. Okay. I could see that maybe. I, I, I wonder how far this goes though. At some point, do we just take mm-hmm. a step back and say, what are we doing? You know, what, what are these things? I don't know. Yeah. No, I think, I, I think that's fair. At some point it gets really weird. Um, like for example, it's, uh, sorry, uh, with Axie Infinity, um, the game that, I mean, the, the characters are, are just battling each other. It doesn't look that interesting compared to, um, you know, similar games. It actually reminds me a little bit of Raid Shadow Legends, which is a meme because you always just have these characters and it's like play to win type situation. And the fact that there's companies starting around it that are just renting the characters and letting people make money just off of creators it does feel like it's sorry uh, off of gameplay it does feel like it's going too far but i think it's towards the the right direction people spend so much time gaming online why shouldn't their gaming assets have some kind of value did you do you mean pay to win or did you mean play to win with raid i meant um pay to win okay. uh with axie i mean play uh, play to earn oh play to earn yeah okay. play to play earn to for axie play to win for raid because with raid you could okay. actually pay to win and that's why okay. it's a meme and everybody gets made fun of it. And I've done sponsorships with them before because sometimes, you know, they pay well. What would happen with Axie? Because I saw a lot of people talking about that. I never even looked into it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's so amazing today about the crypto space is there is just so much going on all the time. And some days I just look and, and some stuff's trending. And I, you know what? Today I'm busy. I, I can't look up what this nonsense yeah. everyone's buying yeah. today is. And then, and then I see it, and then I just forget to ever look at it. what happened with that. I saw that token rise in value dramatically, but it was it was a it was some kind of game, right? You, you, NFT for a game or something. What was that? Which, which token? Uh, was it Axie? Uh, I don't know how their token works. I was just looking at the game where basically you need to you need to put in something like one k worth in value to have three initial characters, and then you can keep leveling them up, and then they become worth more. And then you could sell them on an external marketplace or you could rent them out and make money off of them. So it's a game where the further you go, the more your characters are worth. So you're basically getting paid to play the game. Okay, so it's World of Warcraft on the blockchain. Is that really what what we're doing? Yeah, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that, which is a really weird concept. Um, it's It's a weird concept. And I keep alternating between, well, this could make sense if it's... A world where the people in the game are actually adding value and making the game better maybe they should be rewarded for it but the way it's currently working is they're just leveling up their players nothing else is really changing what is going on 
having seen what communities are like, and that's right, guys, in the chat, I'm talking to you. I can't rely on community to do anything good at any point ever. I just, I've seen it with my own eyes. You know, I know yeah. these people, I, I know what they're capable of and relying on them for things seems a it, bit short-sighted. It does, I guess my question is, there are some real utilities that are going to come out of this space. And I don't understand what they are yet, but I keep trying to play devil's advocate whenever I'm skeptical to think, okay, this is one that could potentially turn into something real. Are there any you've seen that feel like once this is more developed, it will stick around? For NFTs specifically? Yeah, with utility. NFTs with utility, not just ones that are like, oh, this is funny. I, I have the IP to this. I'm going to use it to flex online. I'm a collector. I I can't... <sighs> I. I do think that, so what I do believe in with NFTs is strong marketing forces will successfully market them. And that's why I bought the scam that I bought. Um, I don't so even you, want to say the name anymore. I just want to say scam. Just so I, I just can get it. I, I feel I need to be authentic. Okay, Are you I'm okay, Doug? Are you okay, Doug? Here's a, a tissue. Here's a tissue. I, I'm going to make forty or $50,000 and I just feel bad about it. I just I, I can't believe I did this. I disrespected my family, my bloodline. Yeah, um, honestly, what's going on? Did you I, not make enough know. money in poker, Doug? Really? I guess I guess not. I just needed this. I, I, I mean, it's... It's upsetting. But anyway, uh, at least at least I guess that is a ticket, right? So you're buying a ticket to something. Let's just say, for example, the NFL put their tickets on the on as sold their tickets to NFTs, and that's what was traded, and that was your ticket to a game. Mm -hmm. That would have value, it would have the value of what a ticket is. So and from that perspective, it makes sense. But then you look at these these tickets to to VCon and these items are selling for fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars per per ticket and it's some mm -hmm. dumb squiggly animal that was drawn on a piece of paper yeah does it have value yeah is it reasonable value compared to what it should be worth no probably not actually nowhere close to this so mm -hmm. i don't know i mean i guess when things get weird when it's you're 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 betting on you're investing in something based on thinking that other people will invest in it thinking it will go up so it's, it's yeah. not even the value of the ticket it's the value of the speculation sort of yes yeah yeah, that seems that seems too to be too too far, I think, but I don't know anymore. It's a crazy yeah. world we live in. Well, so what are what are your main so I, I know you're you're at least you've done a little bit of crypto content, right? I think you were talking about that um when we met that you had just done a podcast with someone. Um Yeah, I I, I was initially doing a, a podcast with one of my really good friends who has been working in the Ethereum space for like the last five years or so. And it was mostly just educational because I was learning so much from him already that I figured, oh, it could be useful for other people. But the thing is, as soon as I combined content with something that I'm interested in learning about, it started feeling like work. And I'm someone who naturally enjoys learning a lot. And it, it I just started being a little bit nervous because now I'm putting it, I'm tying it into my brand. And a lot of people who follow me for chess, like mo most people on, on Twitch think anything crypto related is super scammy. So I, I kind of just put it on high well, for now. Well, chess players are smart. So that does make sense. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> lots of stuff in crypto can get kind of scammy but yeah um, yeah there, but it, it wasn't it wasn't really talking about prices or things like that i would just ask him a lot of uh, questions about ethereum and how it works and trying to just understand some of the fundamentals so which ones do you like the most i, I assume you like ethereum if you're having him on then or which ones do you like yeah i mean i may since again i'm not somebody who's going to spend a ton of time figuring out all the different tokens um it was most mostly just eth and bitcoin and then i looked into a couple other ones but those are the main two what about you that's that's the play that that almost nobody makes 
just own the good ones that are big. I yeah. never have no no friend ever hits you up. Hey, I'm really thinking about Bitcoin and Ethereum. No, it's always what about the scammy NFT? What about this this token? Is this the next dog coin? Is it the next dog coin on the next blockchain? It's never the the solid ones. I mean, I, I I'm pretty similar. I, I'm I'm mainly Bitcoin Ethereum, but I, I do some I do dabble in some other things. I, I think mm-hmm. like when you're talking about infrastructure earlier, I kind of like what Chainlink's doing, where they essentially have oracles that price things. Um, and so mm-hmm. essentially, you you kind of need to use the Chainlink Chainlink network to get accurate pricing, and the cost of that is essentially buying Link. Um, so that creates sort of some demand side. So I like what they're doing there. Um, so that's probably one of my bigger holds outside of that. And then um, after that, I, I think some of the other layer two stuff is kind of interesting, um, but I don't own significant portions of anything outside of, I would say, those three. So those are my, my kind of main I mean, plays, I would say. Uh, I do think that there is this thing that happens where things go through hype cycles. And like, for example, right now, I, I'm, I have a small position in Avalanche because I think that it's going to go up a lot when it lists. They basically have this some uh, a DeFi incentive program and they're going to add it to some of the big protocols like Aave and Curve. And I think when that happens, okay. there's going to be a, a large um, a large amount of capital that moves over. This exact process happened with Polygon. I think this is going to happen again with Avalanche. So I'll, I'll make some plays like that every now and then, but I'm not some long-term Avalanche bull that's, I mean, you know, I'm just going to hold this indefinitely. It's just because I kind of researched the play and I thought that it made sense. How much um, time I, do you spend researching your investments in crypto? I would say a good amount. I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. Is it research if I'm in a group chat chatting? Uh, if that counts a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, say, learning from other people who spend their time in this is probably one of the most effective ways to be figuring out where to put your money in the industry. Tailing sharp people, yeah, is is just a it's just a good move, and and. I think when a smart person says, okay, this is why I think this, this is what, why this is going to happen. It's okay to disagree with them and have your own take. But if you sort of blindly tail the really sharp people, it it won't go that badly for you. Yep. And then also, if you can think about why they're wrong in a way that makes sense and they can't create a counterpoint that answers your question, then maybe that's a reason to say no. But there's just so many different ways you can go with it. And I mean, I, I, I miss stuff all the time. I mean, I, I tweeted the other day. I didn't realize how many people were going to enjoy this tweet. Just, I guess, any self-depreciating thing is just great on Twitter. What was but your tweet? I, I tweeted, I said something that was like, well, I, I might have owned zero Solana or CryptoPunks, but at least I got into the top of Avalanche for minus 15%. And I got like 4,500 likes or something. What People enjoy my misery on on. Blockchain. Oh, come on. That- of course they do. Of course <laughs> they do. Everyone right now is just like posting photos of whatever they have that's worth an absurd amount of money. It's nice. Nice to remember that not everybody is winning. Oh, great! It's nice to remember that there's there, there are dugs out there. For every time mix, there's a dug. That's what you have to remember. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, but- at some point, I was just tired of looking on Twitter and be like, "This 13 year old made 400k." I'm like, "Fuck! I'm just doing the wrong industry stuff. What right. am I doing out here grinding chess on online?" Yeah, yeah. Here, feel bad about yourself for a moment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The thing about the thing about crypto that's interesting is that whenever. A currency makes it into the top 10, 15, 20, whatever. There are people that got into it early. And those people just made tons of money. Just, yeah. Just, just tons of money. And it can be random people. And and it doesn't mean that they were smart or that they realized how good of an idea it was. It just means that there are a lot of these people out there and that sometimes Steelers hit home runs. It kind of reminds me mm-hmm. of when someone wins the main event. Yeah. To the to to uh, a casual fan, oh, that player must be really good. They won the main event. Not so much. A lot of the main event winners in the last twenty years have been not good poker. But there's been a, a, a chunk mm-hmm. of good ones too. But um, a lot of them have just been, you know, it's six thousand people, seven thousand people, five that whatever it is. 
you have to get super lucky and there are not that many good players in the world. So it's probably going to be someone that's not that good. It's the same thing with some of these 13 year olds on TikTok who yeah. invested in whatever dog. Are point. you really telling me that people who bought rocks early didn't make a ton of money because of their raw IQ, Doug? Is that what you're saying? It, it's possible. It's possible. Okay. It's definitely it's it's certainly possible. Um, like the, the Dogecoin rally, I don't short things very often, but when I saw what happened to Doge this year, I, I just I, I I'm shorting this before the SNL thing because the moment the SNL thing happens, this is going to drop like a rock. It was the mm-hmm. most obvious short situation, and I went small, but I I made some money there. But typically, you don't want to short crypto assets. It's usually not not the best play. Um, but you know, even the Doge thing. I mean, I owned Doge in 2013 or something. I was doing uh, some oh. some. Why farming. did you Why did you buy Doge? So back in the day, there was these dice sites where you could essentially be the bankroll for the house mm-hmm. and you'd put your money on and then the house would use that to allow people to, to facilitate, facilitate gambling and they'd give a cut to the investors and a cut would stay with the house. Okay. It was originally called Just Dice. It was for Bitcoin and he launched an offshoot called Doge Dice. And so I was, oh, sweet, gambling where I can be the house. And so I put a bunch of Doge on and was the house mm-hmm. for however long. I mean, I had, I had tens of millions of Doge, right? Uh, and then it just lays low for however many years. Then just this year, because of Elon, it's just popping yeah. off to, to insane heights. Obviously, that was very lucky for people that own Doge, that Elon Musk decided, you know what? This is the one. And then just pumps yeah. the bags all year. Which, was, which is so much has happened this year that is just completely insane. But the richest man in the world pumping Dogecoin is still up there. It's, it's still up there. up there. But remember, he might pump, but he doesn't dump. He made that very clear in an interview that he did. Oh yeah, which interview was that? It was the one with him and Jack and um was Kathy Wood. Where okay. I forgot the host name, but they basically just talked about Bitcoin and, and all kinds of stuff with, with crypto. Uh, he said he pumps but he doesn't dump, which I thought was a very funny just a funny sentence. Yeah, uh, that, that's hilarious. We have the <sighs> go, ahead. go ahead. Oh you go for it. Oh no, because I, I I was gonna get onto a poker and crypto, so finish this point first. I was just gonna say it's funny to have the richest man in the world on here saying no, no he doesn't he doesn't dump his shit coins. It's, it, crypto has actually really started to hit the mainstream when, when we have that happening. Yeah, yeah, it it really feels like it has, which is interesting. The alternating uh, arguments between how it's still early for crypto and how mainstream it is. Where where do you lie on that spectrum? I think we're still pretty early overall. If you look at, if you just look at how much it's grown in the last uh, couple of years, and you think about, you know, how large the stock market is, and you think about sort of the way that the mm-hmm. U.S. dollar is headed right now, I still think, I, I, I guess that's just domestically, but um, there's just so much money in the world, so little of it is in, is in cryptocurrency, and cryptocurrency just makes so much sense to hold as an investment and to minimize the amount of dollars that you have. So, I still think that it's going it's going to go a long way. I think that we're not going to see the kinds of insane gains on Bitcoin and Ethereum we saw early because it's just simply worth too much now. Mm-hmm. But will you average 10, 15, 20% a year in these assets? Absolutely. You'll probably average a bunch more than that. So I still think that they're the best investments that you can make um, that have very low chance of failure or dropping significantly. Obviously, on a given day, you can get wrecked. That happened the other day i went to the airport i was going to orlando I, I got my disney tanked on i was going down to orlando and uh i just refreshed my phone bitcoin price was at 53 i just refreshed and it said 43 like, what the hell is my phone <laughs> is an error? I, I, I was it was it was i was in shock i had to almost rush to my laptop trying to do some some transactions and stuff but it's 
I mean, stuff like that happens, right? So you're going to have mm-hmm. these moments where you just lose a ton of money. Um, but if the, you sell, yeah. Well, I'm that's, teasing. That, I'm teasing. That's its own argument. I don't want to go down that road. I've had this argument with my stepdad so many times. Um, <laughs> the value of a thing is its value. No, its value is what you sell. I, I no, of course. I, 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 yeah. I'm just messing. Continue. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, but anyway, so just so you're gonna have moments like that. But I think I think longer term, these are some of the best the best uh, holds you can. And 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 I, I heard a, a good point the other day. I forgot I forgot who said it. But basically, mm-hmm. if you want to become wealthy, you sort of need to um, really go. I'm butchering the quote, but you really need to put a lot of your eggs in one basket, right? You need to concentrate to build wealth yep. and you you diversify when you want to keep wealth. And I think a mistake that I, well, whatever you want to call it is early on, I, I diversified thinking that it was just a smart move to do um, where I just kind of invested a lot across a lot of different things. And it's definitely made it. So even if, if crypto had gone badly, I still would have done great. But I do think, man, if I had not diversified, then things would have gone tremendously better for me. Um, so it, it, you, can, you can't look at it in hindsight like that. The bottom line is, I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are the safest solid bets. Uh, if you, but you're not going to get super rich off these things like a lot of people did. You're just making a good strong bet for the future. And and who knows? Maybe maybe these things will still, you know, five, ten x in the next few years. That's definitely possible. Uh, but it's it's not really possible for them to go down eighty or ninety percent. Um, I just don't think that that is possible anymore at this point. Interesting. I think so. Ha, have you ever said how much of of your net worth you've held in crypto? I'm guessing that's not a public thing. Oh, obviously percentage. I'm not going to go dollar value, but yeah, I've, yeah. I've usually I've usually been around a third. Um, I've had points where it it had more like half. I've had points where it's more more like a fourth, but I've usually kept it around a third. Um, I, I usually go roughly like a third crypto, a third business, uh, a third. Um, kind of traditional investments like real estate stocks that kind of stuff so i have a pretty nitty portfolio by a lot of my friends standards Interesting. uh i'm sure there are some circles where that's the super aggressive portfolio but yeah i just like to have everything kind of covered where if if stuff goes badly in one area i'm still making money kind of everywhere so is, is crypto the area of investing that you find most interesting right now definitely because it's the most happening mm-hmm. buying a house isn't really that interesting it's nice it's nice to live in a house. Nice mm-hmm. to have, or it's nice to have a, a a place that you enjoy living at, or whatever. Invest in real estate, but those aren't fascinating. Like I have a I have a buddy who has a small fund in Central Florida. I've been in for the last five or six years, and you know, he shows little pictures of houses they're doing and stuff, and it's cool. Like I'm like, oh, this is nice. Oh, this is you nice. So yeah, do nice. you think? It's, what would your advice be to young talented people? Do you think more of them should be going into crypto over, let's say, traditional jobs? A hundred percent, unless. Unless you have a specific path that you want to you want to follow, because uh, so the world is just changing so much in the value mm-hmm. that people can provide, sort of in in mid tier areas where a lot of the, the good middle class jobs are just not really kind of there anymore. And I think it's going to continue to go that direction as things mm-hmm. are automated and the wealth wealth gap increases, all that kind of stuff. So I think that for young people today, I think it's really important that you build a skill set that's valuable. And so if you have a traditional skill set that you can build, I think that you can have a great life being an electrician or, or doing things like that where you, you have a specific skill set. Um, but the whole generic, just go to college, get your degree, and then where's my high-paying job? That That's kind of not not really the way things are anymore. Do you think you're biased because you're able to drop out and make such a successful career for yourself? Do you think it takes a specific personality who can who can do this without a traditional path? Depends on the the career type, right? It depends on what you're doing specifically, because, for example, a very small fraction of the country or world 
can be mm-hmm. professional athletes. Right. That's not a realistic goal for most people. So yeah. it depends on your skill. You got to kind of, the thing is you have to sort of be honest with yourself and figure mm-hmm. out what your skill sets are. What are you good at doing? Are you good at, are you really good at critical thinking? Are you really good at talking? Are you really good at, at sports? Are you really mm-hmm. good at uh, business? Are you, are you good at investing? You have to kind of figure out what your skill set is. Are you good with your hands? Are you, whatever it is, you know, are you good with people? You have to sort of figure out what your skill sets are and then kind of figure out what path makes sense for you because this whole you live in america and so you get to show up and get your degree and now your job at ford is right outside the door those days are so far gone and i think that we're just putting all these people into school for 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 what what are they what are they going to get when they get out when they have their bachelor's degree what what are they showing up for okay i got my degree in communications now what am what am i doing communicating I and mean, what do you what, what do you do with that right so i think that we're, we're just pumping these the education system up so much with the value of a college degree when what really is the value of that degree in a lot of careers that said you want to be a doctor you go to college you want to be a right. lawyer go to college there's obviously uses use case for that but we're just this blanket send everyone just isn't gonna last forever or at least shouldn't oh sorry i have a little chat popping up because i think i have my virtual stuff someone's talking in my offline chat give me one second there we how go how are you okay, making stuff show up on my i'm the host <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I actually, it's interesting you say this about college because my, my sister is 19. She's on her second gap year now. Um, and a, a lot of her friends, you know, have been coming to visit her. And it's interesting to see this generation uh, talk about college, both with skepticism where they don't think it's a traditional job market, but also they don't know what else to do. And they see going to college as a good way to kind of figure out their interests and what they like and explore a lot of things. It does feel like when you're someone who's gone through a traditional school system for, you know, 12 years or something like that in the U.S., to just go and figure things out on your own and what you're good at is is really scary. And I do wish that there was a, a better system for for kids to have a choice between just going to college or doing like a one-year program that costs less and really gives them much more exposure to different things. You don't get a good preparation for life through the, the school system and what to expect. And it doesn't prepare yep. you for realities. And mm-hmm. I mean, there should be, it is criminal, criminal. That there's not a high school course on how the, how to manage your money. Yeah, of basic, course. Taxes, hey guys, money no credit cards. Yeah. Taxes. Um, just some, some basic skills that can help you survive in the world and be a mm-hmm. human being. Um, there was a poker player uh, named Michael Mizraki who he basically got caught not having paid taxes. And I want to say his defense was, this might be a misquote, but I, it, I didn't realize I was supposed to be paying, you know, he was buying all this stuff. Didn't even realize. So, so, you know, this happens to people where it's uh, all of a, who told him he had to pay taxes. Probably no one. Whose fault's that really, when you think about it. Right. right, right. That's all an right. interesting argument to try to make. I'm sure it didn't hold up in the courts, but <laughs> I mean, it's a good attempt. It's a good attempt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously it didn't win, but I, I guess, I guess, is it criminal if you're not paying taxes when no one ever told you you had to pay? Yes. But okay, yes, yes, yes. That's why. It's, that's why it's criminal. It's not in the, in, in a course in high school. That's I agree. I agree. It should be something required if you're going to expect people to do it properly. That's for sure. Um. But yeah. But go, going back to just like life skills and, and career trajectory and all that kind of thing. I mean, we're we're getting into some interesting times now with the with the um with with unemployment and the way that COVID has affected the country and mm-hmm. and. The fact we've been handing out a lot of money now, which is really a first for the U.S. And it's funny because when uh, Andrew Yang was really coming up uh, in the presidential run, 
people started to flirt with the idea of UBI. Ooh, now we're mm-hmm. going to talk about UBI. Maybe maybe that's something we can do. But but I think no one was really anywhere close to we should actually do this. Right. And then you and then you get a couple of years of the government sending checks, and all of a sudden. It, it's not so far away. It's not nearly as far away as it would have been back then. And you're going to have way more people on board with it because unemployment goes up and obviously people can't work because of COVID in, in, in a lot of different ways. So I think that that's, so I think that the lack of jobs and maybe a willing, a more willing government to go into something like UBI will help preserve some kind of quality of life for people and maybe the lower socioeconomic group. But the reality is if you're in, coming out of college or you're coming out of high school and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, it's not easy, you, but you mm-hmm. do kind of have to find your own path and you have to find a path. You have to, it can be a traditional path, but you don't want to take a traditional path into a career that's not going to have a, a lot of future potential. I mean, I would definitely not recommend, and I know it's a huge industry right now, but becoming, you know, people that just are truck drivers or, or drive Ubers or Lyfts or whatever, that is a huge industry in the US. That's going to get automated. Right. It's just, it's kind of a countdown to when. I, right? And Andrew Yang talked a lot about this on his uh, platform as well and tying it into. Um, UBI, which makes sense because this is like the token industry you look at that is going to get automated in the future. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that and call centers, I think, are the ones that are some of the biggest uh, where the most people will be affected. So it, it's really tough. I mean, I have a younger sister. She's nine years younger than me. So she's 23. Mm-hmm. Um, again, don't want to get I don't want to throw my family into, into yeah. the limelight here on some of these conversations. But, you know, she's trying to figure out what she wants to do. And it, it's just it, it is tough nowadays to figure it out. But um you kind of just have to figure out what you're good at and what you want to do and, and sort of take it from there. And um, it's tough. I, I, I wish I had better a better answer for the, it's not, there's no easy answer, right? There really isn't. And I see that also with, with my sister and her friends. Um, they're really tough questions and there's no good way other than just doing the work by yourself, using the access you have online to really look into the areas that you're interested in. And if you're somebody who's more of a, a go-getter, it is a really cool, cool time to be all alive where you could basically get most of the information online. Um, but again, I just wonder if it's it's a personality type or somebody who's been pushed to be a self-starter who's able to do that because it's not really something you're, you're taught in schools when you're usually just given a structure. I think unstructured learning is a tough skill to develop if you don't have a natural inclination towards it. And it is not something that the education system does a good job training. And yeah, I think that's what you need to start to learn. That's an interesting point. Uh, I think that's very true. You need to figure out how to learn about things that you're not told you need to learn. Yep. And then I think another important skill set to have is uh, the ability, the, the willingness to take risk because we're sort of taught you to do the safe thing, do the right thing, mm-hmm. do, do, do the make the decision that sets you up for tomorrow that doesn't give you any risk. But the reality is you're going to have to take risk in life to succeed. And mm-hmm. that's probably going to continue to increase. So you have to be willing to take risks. I mean, look at the crypto markets. It's the best example. So many idiots just just binked something and, and made so much money. You know, and you're just like, wow, yeah, you feel you should feel bad about yourself. This guy just made fifty million dollars. So many people lost it as well, right? And got yeah, scammed. so many did. Yeah. Maybe it's a bad example, but the the point is being willing to bet on yourself and and take risk when you think you see an opportunity is something mm-hmm. that I think you need to have as a skill set as well. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. Um, and I. I just wonder how younger generations are going to be able to develop that. It's uh, time, time will tell. Luckily we don't have to figure it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, we, uh, we're, we're doing okay, <laughs> but exactly. Um, so, so going back to talking about pokers for a little bit here b- before you go. So are you, are you going to be playing any more events in the near future? What do you, what do you got kind of lined up? So 
again, I need to decide whether I'm okay being bad because sometimes I'd rather not do something at all than be bad at it. At least there's some luck in poker, so that's really fun. I was uh, considering playing in the WSOP because um, I had somebody who was interested, a a company that was interested in in sponsoring my buy-in. So it's not like I'd be taking the risk there and it could be a cool experience. But of course, um, the price I'm paying there is the opportunity cost for whatever time I'm spent studying poker, going to the event, taking the time off streaming and things like that. So I need to figure it out. I really enjoy poker. Um, The cool thing that I I mentioned is happening is I think there's going to be a boom in content related to poker with amateurs, with content creators. So if I'm able to do something in that area or help facilitate some events, then it's pretty cool because one, the opportunity cost of me spending my time on it is now fine because I'm making good content and you know, networking with other streamers. But second, the skill set on it is now much more level based. And I'm going to feel less bad because everybody else is also an amateur. And even by training for things like the WSOP, then I'll get better for this space that I think is very interesting. Um, So I'm still figuring it out. But those are my general thoughts right now. Are you talking about playing the WSOP main event? Yeah, or the, the, the ladies event. Okay, so having played both of them myself, I still take some heat over that. Um, both are great experiences, but the main the main event's one of a time, one of a kind. I think uh, that's what I, think, I heard. That's what I heard it's, that it's such a unique experience. There is really nothing like it. It is an unbelievable grind. There are you play for days and days and days. If you go deep, you're going to be playing for. If you made it all the way to the final table, you would play almost two weeks of poker. And the levels <sighs> are two two hours long. Okay. It is a marathon. But the experience, the atmosphere, the feeling if you go deep, they're closing off tables. It's getting smaller. There's less people. The halls start to thin out. You start to taste how you're getting close. Um, there's a feeling to that, and and the it's it's a truly one of a kind experience. That if you don't do this year, you should definitely do it at some point in your life because I think I think getting that experience is something that that anyone that has played poker or enjoys poker should experience at least once. Interesting. And um, what tables do you have to end up on to be in the money? I, I forget if they pay the top 10 or 15% of the field, but it's something like that. So let's just say, it, I think it'll be a little smaller this year mm-hmm. because only uh, vaccinated people can play. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, there's a chunk of poker players that aren't, I mean, chunk of America that's not. And so obviously that's going to thin the field out, but let's just say there's going to be 5,000 people or something. So 500-ish people get paid or 600 people get paid, something like that. So it'd be the last, I don't know, how many tables that 70 or 80 tables are going to get paid 90 tables Interesting. however big it is yeah something but like yeah that. It, it, no it, it does sound like an awesome experience i do want to do it at some point i just need to figure out when is the right time and then i would study a little bit because why not you have a big with chess as well when you have an event or a match that's the best motivator to actually study and enjoy doing it agree and not to put a damper on studying um but I was talking and about I'm saying before. going from like 800 to 1200 just to feel See, like that's where the value is though because yeah. if you're if you're really good there's not much value in studying because let's just say you're playing a ten thousand dollar event and yeah diminishing returns at some point for same with chess exactly yeah. so just learning sort of some which bet sizes are a good where and how to mm-hmm. handle your stack and um not putting yourself in really shitty situations because you can put yourself in horrible horrible situations in the main event oh my god and I remember one of my first 
first year I was playing, I put myself in just a terrible spot on the stone bubble against a big sack who was like being aggressive with me. And I had pocket nines and then an ace came in the turn and they're barreling. And I just, I just folded it. I disgustingly folded the turn or river or whatever it was. He like jammed the river at my tournament life. Yeah. Am I, I going to stone bubble here? I don't know. Um, so think about ICM thinking about, uh, you know, situationally weird stuff happens with sacks basically, um, in tournaments compared to cash games where mm-hmm. you just sort of, get put in these situations where if you make a call the damage it does to you versus your opponent is it, very asymmetric so it, it, in that example i just gave if i call and lose i make zero dollars from this tournament and i'm out mm-hmm. whereas if i call and win he loses 10 percent of his chips he doesn't care it's whatever yeah. you know he was trying to win the chips yeah. so um that makes situations very weird and then also final tables get really weird with pay jumps how you have to play play different as there are certain jumps Right, and usually, what happens in all these spots, what it kind of boils down to, is um, much like in real life, the middle class gets squeezed, and basically, when you have middling chips, you have enough to where you can't do something aggressive and lose because that's you're just trying to outlast the other middle chip. Yeah, and the small guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you, if you have no chips, gamble it up. Who cares if you lose? You're supposed to lose. You had no. Yeah, chase. exactly. If you have a lot of chips, who cares? Gamble it up. You just lose a small amount of them. But the the middle stacks are really what get what get the squeeze put on when you play tournaments. Oh, I mean, it, it just sounds so fun. Of course, you have to get to those tables, but even the the experience and the adrenaline and the atmosphere. It's it's really it's really a one of a kind tournament. And I've never are you managed, playing? Uh, I'm not playing this year because I'm actually going to going to be getting married during it. During oh, it, so, that's awesome. Yeah. It's a good reason to miss it. Yeah, yeah I'm going to be a good getting reason. married. Yeah, I'm looking for. We're going. We're going to uh, Hawaii. Actually, we're getting married at the um, the hotel from the White Lotus. Have you seen the White Lotus? Uh. Uh-uh. Okay, it's like an HBO show. It's uh, it randomly blew up for I don't know a few weeks there, but basically okay. it's just a hotel in in uh, Maui. It's extremely nice. I went there a few years back. It's a beautiful location. So so we decided to book it. And then the White Lotus came out after we'd already booked everything. We're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Now we get to oh, see wow. the hotel we'll be at. That's yeah. amazing. That sounds yeah. so cool. Well, I, I'm glad that you guys are able to still get married uh, in, in the pandemic. My uh, best friend, she was trying to get married in Canada, but the restrictions are so bad right now. It's the second year she's pushing it and they're just going to call it off. It's brutal. We actually were going to do last year. And mm-hmm. then as it got closer, we realized that it wasn't going to be possible because Hawaii's right. travel restrictions were super were, were super strict. Um, so we just put it off for a year. And then this year it was getting touch and go. But we're, we're, everything is good. Hawaii has slowly been ramping up their restrictions again. So we're just like, please hold, just hold. We're using our one time on the, on the, on this one right here. Cause if we have to delay it again, it would just be unbearable. So hopefully everything yeah. works out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but anyway, th- thank you for coming on today. This was great. I think we had a, a great conversation about a lot of different topics and I learned a little bit about chess. And if yeah. I ever need some lessons, I know, I know where I'm going. Exactly. Exactly. And we're both in Austin. So I can give you some over the board lessons. Nice, nice. No shit talking though. I, I my com- I need my confidence to remain intact. I can't promise that, Doug. I can't promise. Oh no. That. All right. Well, anyway, that's gonna do it here for us today, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we're gonna be joined next week by Garrett Adelstein. Uh, we'll be talking about a bunch of different poker topics. So I'll see you then. Appreciate it, guys. See you later. <laughs>